All right, welcome to Making the Argument. Before we get started, I have a very important announcement. We have a brand new deal with GoodRanchers.com. That's right. If you go into Good Ranchers and you use promo code Nick and you sign up for one of their subscriptions, you're not only going to get $15 off, but do you remember the old deal where you got two pounds of ground beef with each order? Well, we just upped the game. That's right. You can choose top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon now. Every single order you get on that subscription is going to come with free. Top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon. You get to choose which one if you use promo code Nick. And again, $15 off on top of that. That's a savings of $480 in meat by signing up for one of those subscriptions. Not to mention the fact that if you are looking for a gift for someone that is impossible to shop for, you can go on to GoodRanchers.com and get one of their brand new gift boxes. Now, this is a limited time only offer. It's part of their overall Black Friday special. So go on to GoodRanchers.com to get more details. Sign up for promo code Nick in order to get that deal and let's get on with the show. Do you believe in your values so much that you'd be willing to be canceled for them? What about being fired? Uh, what about if your job required you to violate your conscience and you had to make a conscious decision that the next thing that you did or the statement that you made meant you were going to lose your primary source of income? What if your kid's school went so far that you had to pull them out and homeschool? These are the questions that a lot of people are being forced to consider right now. And what we're going to discuss today on this podcast in our discussion with Joel Salatin and beyond is whether or not you're actually prepared for that and how to actually get prepared for it if you're not. All of that and more coming up on this episode of Making the Argument. Thank you to everyone in our Circle community who helped us choose this episode that is happening today. If you haven't already, go down to the link in the description and sign up for our community chat. We would love to see you there. All right, I am your host, Nick Freitas, member of the Virginia House of Delegates, but other than that, a reasonably nice guy. I've also got a little bit of experience with what we're going to be talking about today with homesteading, so I'm looking forward to this discussion. Not with us here today is my beautiful bride, Queen of the Bees, Tina. She uh, had to step out once again to get some milk, and uh, I've been told that it's perfectly reasonable for someone to take 18 hours to get milk, so I'm sure she's coming back. Please come home. No, I'm sure she's coming back. Unfortunately, he's stuck with me. <laughs> so we have our resident historian, political prognosticator, Christian. Hines. Hello. How you doing, Christian? I am uh, somewhat intimidated that I'm going to have to be the only person <laughs> that Nick's going to be able to bounce uh, bounce ideas off for this oh, no. episode. Oh, no. Thankfully, we have this whole audience. We've, we've replaced you, Christian, with the audience. <laughs> and then, of course, our producer of producers, Nicholas Hamilton, the good Hamilton, the one that doesn't like Central banking. That's correct. One other thing, we are welcoming all kinds of questions from our audience today on this topic. And if you have a question, you can drop it in any of our three locations that we're streaming. Please start your comment off with question and then state it. And that way we'll be able to find it. All right. So with my official Polyface Farms mug, I'm going to introduce you all to Joel Salatin. Now, many of you in our audience already know who Joel is because he's he's kind of the godfather, not of just like homesteading, but of sustainable farming and a lot of these other uh, practices that he's put into play, which kind of, uh, you know, I, I would say contradict this, this notion or this idea that the only way that we could feed a large-scale population is through industrial farming. I want to say right off the bat, like I, I understand why industrial farming exists, why industrial ranching exists. I, I get it. I'm not here to trash that. But I do think Joel makes some really good arguments with respect to his methodology. And one of the things I love the most about it is that if you are interested in homesteading, if you are interested in getting involved in agriculture at kind of a micro level, he actually provides mechanisms that you can use. Very very 
practical mechanisms that you can use. I know we've tried some of them and it's been awesome. We're, we're loving the results so far. But what we're going to first do is introduce you to Joel and his story because a lot of people know him from the methods that he uses, but a lot of people don't understand where actually he came from, how he developed those, what happened to his family, what happened to his family overseas. Some people don't even know he used to live overseas. We're going to talk about that right now. So you guys are actually getting a sneak peek into an interview that we did a while back that we're still going through the process, still fi finishing up the edit, uh, the edits. Cause we just, we want to make sure we do Joel justice on that. Um, but we wanted to give you guys a sneak peek into aspects of this interview. I think we've got something like four hours of... we got like three hours of footage sitting down with Joel, another yeah. two hours of walking around his farm. We're, we're only going to go We're only going to go probably over about 30 minutes of yep. that today. Um, and we're going to kind of do a react to it. We'll break up at different points, talk about some of the things he, he discusses. But let's go ahead and get started with the first part of our interview with Joel Salatin. We're here in the beautiful Shenandoah Valley with none other than Joel Salatin of Polyface Farms. And in fact, we're in the very area, the very spot where he does his lunatic farm tours. Now, why do you call it lunatic? Well, because when you learn more about where Joel has come from, the sort of work that he does here, and the sort of pushback he has gotten from some of the big boys in the industry as well as government officials, they decided to call him a lunatic. Instead of run away from it, he embraced it and has been teaching other people to do the sort of sustainable farming that he does here on Polyface Farms. Joel, thank you for being with us here today. Oh, it's my delight and honor to yeah. be with you. Or I should say thank you for having us here. Yeah. <laughs> well, first things first, we, we want the audience to get to know you and your background. And we were talking a little bit earlier today. Can you tell us a little bit uh, story of, of your folks sure. and how all this kind of came about? Sure. Well, you know, probably the greatest blessing in my life now looking back is to realize I grew up in a home that embraced different, that embraced being a maverick. And so um, my dad, after, after the World War II, he flew in the Navy and uh, got discharged and went to Indiana University on the GI Bill uh, with a desire for business administration. But from, from his teenage years, you know, this was, this was, you know, he grew up in the 30s and it was Admiral Perry going to the South Pole. It was, you know, it was, it was the kind of final push um, uh, into some of these uncharted areas. And he just became enamored of the opportunities in the, in the undeveloped world. Um, he saw the U.S. as, you know, we've kind of gone to every corner, you know, and, and it's, it's done. But there was, he saw a lot of opportunity for entrepreneurs in, uh, in, in foreign countries. And land was cheap, and he wanted to be a farmer, no money, how do you, you, know, how you get started? So um, went to IU, and then he hitchhiked to uh, Vermont, to Middlebury College, which specializes in foreign language. Spent um, a semester uh, learning Spanish. Hitchhiked from Vermont to Mexico <laughs> for six, imagine that, yeah. uh, for six months, stayed with a Mexican family, boned up on his Spanish, and then came back and sat for the foreign civil service exam uh, in Spanish, passed it the first go, and went as a bilingual accountant with Texas Oil Company to Venezuela, uh, where you know, this was you know 1948, the beginning of the you know real oil boom and stuff, and around the world. And of course, those uh, they called them man camps, you know, where the the workers would come. The workers were Venezuelans, and the management was was Americans. And so the the tension was always about money. And so they wanted these bilingual accountants. It was it was a very specific uh, job description niche for a very specific 
period of time in history and uh, quite lucrative and paid well. And within six years, he was able to earn enough and, and, and save enough to buy a thousand acre farm in the uplands of Venezuela, South America. And uh, meanwhile, he you know, got married, uh, married mom and mom had caused a fracas in, uh, in college by, uh, by wanting to start a, a, a non-alcoholic women's fraternity. <laughs> and, um, and so she got blackballed by the university as being a troublemaker that, you know, she wasn't content with all the, you know, the beer drinking uh, fraternities. And so, you know, they were both mavericks and, uh, and uh, went to Venezuela. And uh, the goal was to produce um, chickens, uh, meat chickens and, uh, and milk, dairy. Dad saw that as two kind of, you know, opportunities beckoning at the time. And so we started raising chickens out on the farm. And, um, and the, the indigenous chickens there all have kind of a, a subclinical uh, at that time, a subclinical um, mucus discharge from kind of a, a subtherapeutic pneumonia from the filthy conditions they were raised in. You know, the open sewers, uh, you know, the squat pots under the houses, that yeah. sort of thing. And, and and so, of course, you know, this is before electricity. Um, before, you know, there's no supermarkets. And so the food system Pause real was quick. The, the farming community. Okay, just to remind everyone, obviously, you know, when he says before electricity, he's, he's talking about the area that they're they're at right now in in, in Venezuela when they're doing this. But Nick, um, why did why were they in Venezuela? I might have missed that. So so this is so what he was talking about earlier was was his father when he got out of World War II, he was living at a time where he talks about how Admiral Perry was was um, you know just kind of making his journey to the South Pole. And it was this idea that, you know, pretty much all the, the, the blank spots on the map were being filled in. Okay. And, and he really wanted to get into agriculture, but he, he felt like that would actually, and this is, I mean, we're, we're, we're talking about the 19, you know, forties, fifties now that would be too difficult to pull off in the United States. Really? And so he really, he really saw a lot of opportunity um, in the developing world to be able to, to, to go in there, to be able to get property and to be able to, you know, be an entrepreneur and specifically an agricultural entrepreneur in that side. So they, they were both, and when, and you learned about a story with his dad too. I just think it was so cool. It's like, he's going to school in Connecticut. He's learning how to speak Spanish. So what does he do? He hitchhikes Hitchhike. from yeah. Connecticut to Mexico, goes down there, stays with the family in order to immerse himself in, in the culture and the language. Uh, so he can get this job that will get him to Venezuela. And, um, you know, but that's, that's why they, they okay. chose it. It's yeah. worth noting at this point in time, Venezuela's economy was actually in some ways booming. Oil yeah. had recently been discovered. It was not the Venice at all. It was not the Venezuela that we know today. Um, the Venezuela that we know today, I mean, they're importing oil. Yeah. I mean, the, the, enti the entire economy has collapsed. But at this point in time, Venezuela was actually briefly Venezuela was was pretty much the richest country in South America around this point in time. Really? Yeah. It, it looked like it was going to basically become like like an economic, you know, powerhouse. Yeah. Powerhouse within the region. And I think Joel is going to explain how the story ends. And. People forget that I think a lot of people think that when Chavez came along in the late 90s, early 2000s, that that's when it all fell apart. But Chavez actually came into power because Venezuela had tried socialism before. Well, and he's he's actually going to he's actually going to talk about this because um, there's a reason why they're not in Venezuela yeah. anymore. And it didn't happen recently. So let's go in. And um, yeah. So basically what he's doing just to get everyone back to me, he's talking about the 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 chicken market in the marketplace where people sold their, their produce, their livestock and whatnot. And, and some of the things that they were able to do. So let's go ahead and 
would have their farmers. They would come in. You know how those Latin American countries are with the, you know, the village square, the city yeah. square, and all the farmers would set up. Well, then the middlemen, um, not Walmart and Costco, but you know, individual uh, uh, middlemen would come and they would they would bar, you know negotiate for for product uh, in in bulk, and then they would take that through the city. And they had their customers, you know, that would uh, get from them. And, of course, they're always jockeying for the best bananas and the best papayas and the best pineapples and the best chicken and the best eggs. And the, uh, there, there was enough food knowledge in the area to, um, that, that, the, that the average uh, buyer, um, normally was, the, you know, the, the senora of the house, um, she would go out and these guys would have the chickens, you know, hanging on a live on a, on a pole. Uh, and she would take her finger and run it down along the beak of all these upside down chickens. And the ones with the driest beak were the healthiest. Gotcha. The ones with the most snot <laughs> were the, you know, were the <laughs> unhealthiest. And so, um, so, you know, everything, everything in that very open free market was incentivized to good product. You know, yeah. everything was, everybody was, the farmers were trying to have the driest beak chickens. The vendors were trying to buy the driest beak chickens. The 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 senoras were looking to buy the driest beak chickens. Everything was you know was was incentivized to to excellent quality. Pause Here real we came quick. Along and this is one of the interesting things where he talks about everything being incentivized toward good quality. So obviously it's not as if everybody was producing you know a, a the, the healthiest chicken possible. But what it was is that the producer without without. Because we're talking about a time in Venezuela where it's not like they had inspectors going around to every single marketplace, going around to every single farm. Um, but he talks about being naturally incentivized toward quality because people knew what to look for. And the people that were trying to buy in bulk so they could then go and sell it in the city for a higher price, they knew what to look for. And, and this is this is part of what we talk about in, in, in economics where um, – you know, Market economy, when people uh, can voluntarily choose to do business with someone else, will naturally be driven to go and do business with the people that are providing the best product for the best price. And so this idea that there, everything would just descend into chaos and, and you know, anarchy and, and fraud um, if, if we didn't have, you know, the FDA or government inspectors, right. it, it's not true. Now, you can argue all day long if you would like that you think that some government regulation or inspection is appropriate. I'm, I'm all I'm saying, the point I'm trying to make here and the point that I think that Joel was making in, in part is that there, there is a natural incentive within a, a free market environment to produce a good product because if, if you're producing something that is hurting your customers or your customers don't like and they, they can do business with somebody else, you go out of business. So you do have a natural incentive to be able to pr produce quality. Let's go ahead. Um, uh, we raised our chickens you know, clean and different and ours didn't have any of this, this uh, mucus drainage. And so very quickly, dad cornered the market. Yeah. And, um, and of course, you know. And of you'd course, everyone was grateful. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You'd like to think that the other farmers would say, oh, Senor Saladin, you know, how do you, how do, you uh, uh, do this with the chickens? But no, instead, you know, we were branded as witches and voodoo. You know, it, was, it had to be witchcraft and voodoo to, to do this. Um, and so we were blackballed pretty pretty quickly, and um, and created some you know stir and you know these these gringos coming down here you know and raising clean food. Well, and he, he your dad had really this is his dream. Oh, this was his dream. I mean he he uh, I mean he loved the people, he loved the culture, he loved the language, he loved everything about it. He was absolutely living the dream, and um, and then here came a junta, um, 
and of, of Pettis and Menes in uh, 1959 and on into 60. And, um, and what happens when you have complete societal breakdown is that it allows uh, scores to be settled that are ancillary to the, to the overall, you know, whatever, national political thing. Uh, it allows other scores to be settled. And, uh, and that's why the rule of law is so, is so incredibly important um, it, it, it is because it's easy for lawlessness to break out into all sorts of little unsettled grievances. Now, Nick, he was saying that people, you know, his dad was selling these chickens. People were buying them. He had cornered the market. Yeah. And now he's got other competitors coming in to try and shut down his business. Yeah. Now, would this be an argument for further regulations to make sure that doesn't happen? No, no it was, so it depends on how it's happening, right? So there's, there's a big difference between laws and, and just regulations. So when, when we think of laws, we're, we're, we're generally thinking of, of um, not, not to say that regulations can't have legal power. They obviously do. Um, but, but one way to, to think about it is obviously you have laws against things like fraud. You have laws against murder. Sure. You have laws against theft, all right? Regulations tend to be proactive measures that the government take in order to prevent you from doing something in a particular way because they believe it's more likely to cause negative externalities, okay. right, or, or negative effects. And so th this isn't um, – so, for instance, when, when he talks about, you know, other, other companies trying to – to blackball them. So w what did some of these other companies attempt to do? Well, they, they attempted to spread the rumor that these guys were involved in witchcraft. And so you shouldn't buy their chickens as a result of that. Now, again, there, there's, there's the, the argument could be is that, okay, did they engage in slander or libel? Mm -hmm. um, and, and should they be held for damages? And, and you can have laws against that. And that's fine. The other thing too, though, is that, but again, the marketplace adapts. It's not like they ran them out of business, right? Because they, they tried to start these rumors. Um, if, if they did, what what is what he's going to talk about next wouldn't have had to happen uh, because ultimately you, you might be able to convince somebody to not do business with somebody else by lying about them, slandering them, libeling sure. them, whatever it is. Um, but if, if they're still producing a quality product at a better price, um, you know, we, we see this all the time within within our own marketplace where, you know, people will attempt to, you know, you know maybe use you know, less than honest competitive measures with somebody sure. else uh, or lie about them or essentially damage their, their reputation as opposed to talking about the quality of the product. Uh, but it, it, that's, that's hard to effectively do over time. Over and, a long yeah. period of time. Okay. Yeah. Because the cops are busy. The, you know, everything's in turmoil. Okay. And so, uh, so it was, it was uh, conducive to the scores being settled against um, the Salatons uh, and we basically fled the back doors. Machine guns came in the front door. Um, we went and lived in a city for you know six months while Dad visited every I mean everything from the local constable to to the um, Venezuela's interior ministry, um, whatever Secretary of, of of the Interior, and and on up. Um, and no, it was either what will you what will you pay us? It was either bribe oriented. Yeah. What will you pay us to protect you, or it was you know we can't do anything. You know we're afraid we're going to be assassinated too. So you know I got my <laughs> I got my hands full here, and uh, so finally you know we just the door closed. I mean you know it was it was done, and we salvaged what we could. We packed a couple barrels and 
and got in a merchant, a merchant marine uh, ship uh, coming back to the U.S. and got back to the U.S. in Philadelphia Easter Sunday, 1961. And I was four by that time. And um, dad, dad still wanted to go back. He, he was hoping that things would settle and he'd be able to go back. And that's why we settled here rather than mom and dad's roots were both in the Midwest. Rather than going back to the Midwest, Ohio and Indiana, where they were from, we settled here so we could be a day's drive from the Venezuelan embassy here in case things settled and, and, and we could go back. As that happened, it, it, it never happened. Now, looking back, uh, our family now, while, while that took, I, I, I'm confident that dad never got over it. He, he, that was, I mean, he was 39. Yeah. I mean, he was in the, this was his dream. He'd worked the prime of his life and here he was, you know, at 39 and the whole, and, and I, rem, I, I know now when I turned 39 thinking, if I lost it all, would I start over? And he, he grew a lot in my, yeah. uh, in my estimation yeah. at that time. It was really, really powerful. You want to pause that? Um, That's it, so heartbreaking. It, there is a, there is a whole, there's a whole other portion of this that you'll, you'll be able to see in the full stuff when it comes out uh, because they, they did, they fought, they fought for years um, trying to go back. That's that's what he really wanted to do. Is they, they they just wanted to go back. They wanted to go back to the land they had rightfully purchased and whatnot. They actually had to end up. They actually ended up working with a journalist eventually, um, who who helped them at the very least get a settlement um, from the Venezuelan government for for the land that was essentially taken from them. And that's what they actually used to buy the property for for Polyface Farms. Um, and, and the next segment that we that we go into here is we, we talk a little bit about, um, you know, what if, if you've if you've never gone up to Polyface Farms, it's in Swope, Virginia. It's in Augusta County. It's right there on like, like a beautiful place. Heart of the Shenandoah Valley. It's absolutely gorgeous. They've got about I think they've got a little over a thousand acres now, um, but but not not back then. And um, he talks a little bit about what the property looked like when they first showed up, because the reason why this is important to me is. It would be so easy to go up there and look at his operation, look at the you know the the, the work that he's done, the the success that he's experienced, the the you know the books that he's done. He's, he's with other groups. We're going to actually you know go through a whole list of some other homesteaders and stuff yeah. like that that people might want to research. And it's so easy. And we see this so much now, where people people come and they look they look at the end result. They look at the end success that currently exists and give absolutely zero mind to all the sacrifice and hardship that it took to actually get to that point. And, and, and it becomes this idea of like, well, you have something that I don't have and that's wrong. There's, there's something wrong. No, they literally spent decades rehabilitating this, this land that they, that they purchased when they got back from Venezuela. They spent decades, you know, working multiple jobs, uh, sacrificing, living off of, I, I think he told me at one point, $300 a month. And, and yeah, I'm telling you around it, even adjusted for inflation, that isn't, that's nothing. Um, do in order to make this work, uh, and in, in order to try out ideas in order to make sure that they didn't get too far ahead and, and, and financing a bunch of stuff and, and capital equipment. Um, you know, he, he talks about how when his father first bought the property, uh, he, they brought in advisors. We, you know, what do we do? And it's like, okay, you're going to have to get a bunch of debt. You're going to have to build a bunch of, you're going to grow a bunch of corn, build a bunch of silos, get a bunch of infrastructure. Um, you, you see the same things when people talk about chickens. You need, you know, a million dollar chicken house in order to be, you know, competitive at the commodity scale. And um, and and he said his his dad really looked at this from the perspective of if, if you kind of look at 
agriculture now farming now the the industrial stuff is very very reliant upon you know fertilizers and chemicals and whatnot in order to replenish the soil or in order to you know provide enough nutrients within the soil in order to grow what you're you're doing and um and it's interesting because at World War II, the chemical companies, you know, DuPont, and they were they were producing massive amounts of, of chemicals for a variety of things that had nothing to do with agriculture, right? It had to do with explosives, that had to do with other things. But a lot of those same materials could be effectively used in agriculture. And it was kind of a, a quick fix to a lot of things as opposed to like the composting approach. And so what we're what you're gonna see now in this next segment is talking about one one of the one of the things they did that was significantly different from how they were being told to do it and what what allowed them to be competitive within the the portion of the marketplace they decided to compete in. So let's let's go ahead and go to that next clip. He saw the chemical approach, if not the commodity approach, but he certainly saw the chemical approach as essentially a, a drug addiction. It, it it costs more every year. It makes me dependent on somebody else, mm. um, and and frankly, you know, chemical ten 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 doesn't grow soil, and so that that pushed him to um, to looking for what are nature's patterns, what has stood the test of time, how has soil been built, how has fertility been built, you know, before Dupont. You know, before Monsanto, right? <laughs> uh, for that matter, what kind of food system fed populations for millennia, you know, before Kroger's? And, um, and so what our discovery was, and what he discovered was, it's, it's really quite simple. Um, in nature, animals move. They're not confined in buildings. They move. They move outside. Well, if, they're, if, they're, if they move onto fresh ground all the time, uh, and that's part of their hygiene, sanitation, immune function, right? Uh, then we have to have portable infrastructure. We have to have portable shelter, portable water delivery systems, portable control fencing mechanisms. And so when people say, oh, you're so clever, you invented all this stuff, I think sometimes they think we just sat around as a focus group and said, let's be clever, you know, <laughs> let's be clever. But but no, our cleverness grew out of a conviction that, that God's template, if you will, was, was, was accurate. And how do, we, how do we duplicate nature's template on, on a piece of property? So give, at, give at us a commercial an example scale. of that. Like, what, oh, okay, what is... so, so an example of that is um, how, do, how does nature build uh, soil fertility, all right? Where are the best soils on the planet? They're not under trees. They're not under bushes. And they're certainly not under cornfields. Where are they? They're on prairies mm. with perennial forages. Well, how do these prairies function? I mean, so you can go to the American Midwest. The Shenandoah Valley was, was a magnificent prairie when, you know, Governor Spotswood sent the Knights of the Golden Horseshoe over here to the valley to scope it out because he was afraid of all this, this, these, these roofing Germans and Scotch and Irish, you know, that were coming down from Pennsylvania, coming in behind the British who had stopped at the Blue Ridge Mountains, you know, where Monticello and Thomas Jefferson were. He was afraid, you know, that they were going to get surrounded by these non-British, you know. So he sent, he sent these buddies over here. They spent 10 days... And they, they rode the whole valley, which is 80 miles long and 20 miles wide. And they wrote back and they said, everywhere we rode, we could take the grass and tie it in a knot above the horse's saddle. Can you imagine? That's incredible. It, it was a magnificent 
savannah, silvopasture, and you know, of bison, elk, deer, uh, passenger pigeons, uh, prairie chickens, pheasants, turkeys, and and uh, and so the American Midwest, same thing. The pampas of Argentina, the um, the the uh, most of Australia, you know, Pause the right great up. big uh, uh, the, the one one of the reasons why I love just listening to Joel Salatin talk is because he's got a depth of information and knowledge over years of doing this and research and study, but he also just paints a picture. He does. He does. When he's describing the Shenandoah Valley, I'm just sitting here like, ah. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, what, what I found so fascinating is that he mentioned so many, so many species that don't live in the Shenandoah anymore. Like passenger pigeons have been extinct for over a hundred years. Bison are definitely not found in Virginia anymore, well, although they're not extinct. Well, he, one of the things he talks about. They're not about, in Virginia. Yeah. There, there's actually a bison. There's actually a bison like ranch here in Culpeper. Really? Um, yeah. Um, so okay, one, so I was wrong. Apparently they well, are, but not in the wild, right? Yeah, like, okay. <laughs> so you're not going to go and like I, I have bear cross my property sometime. I never have bison cross my property. But he he talks. This is one of the things I I, I found uh, fascinating as he was describing all of this because when I went on the lunatic farm tour that he has at, at Polyface with with Allie, we got up there and and he just puts you on like these open trailers. So you're sitting on these open trailers and you're driving around and you're looking at how he does everything. He gets off and he explains it, and. One of the things that he discussed um, is is about how how he replicates what happens in nature, and he gave he gave a couple of examples of this one on what to do and one on what not to do. And what's interesting is the what not to do. And I'm just going to tell you because we we're we're going to save this for the the final cut of this. But um, one of the things that has what not to do is a perfect example of when the experts get it wrong. And the devastating effects of when experts get it wrong and how they never seem to take responsibility for when they get it wrong, provided that it was the political, it was the appropriate government narrative. So let me give you an example. He's up there and you're, you're in one of his pastures and he's got all of his cows out there and, and you, you get off the trailer and you're kind of walking around and it's like 200 people. Like the, a lot of people come to go on these tours and, and from all over the place. It's really, it's really interesting. And, and this is in the middle of nowhere. Uh, yeah, this is, I mean, middle of Shenandoah Valley. Uh, it was funny, though, because when, <laughs> when I was on the tour, uh, we're sitting there, and we've been on this tour for about 45 minutes, and, and the guy sitting next to me looks at me and goes, where's your coffee mug? <laughs> so he, had, he had actually seen our, our, uh, our Instagram shorts. But we, we get off, and, he, and he's going through, and he's explaining what he does here, and he's got his, he got his cattle right here, and then he's also got these huge, um, these, these huge like chicken um, um, mobile uh, chicken tractors, uh, not, not tractors. Cause a tractor is, is one that you're kind of, you know, pulling by yourself or whatnot. This is, this is more of, they, they are technically, but they're like, um, I'm trying to think of, they almost look like the cattle cars. Um, okay. they're not, but that, that's what they look like. And he, and he's got it all set up with chickens in there. Maybe somebody I mean, in the comments can help. Yeah. And, and he's talking about how, uh, the, the cattle cattle move. And he goes, if you look at the American Prairie, uh, before, you know, massive expansion and whatnot, what happened? He goes, well, you had, you had major grasslands. Uh, bison herds would come in. They, they'd, eat, they'd eat the grass. And then who, who follows these bison herds? He goes, you know, birds. Birds do. And so what, what do the birds do? He goes, well, the birds come in, and obviously the bison are dropping off a lot of fertilizer, right, as, as they're moving. So they're, they're, they're cutting down the grass, right? They're pruning it, as he likes to call it. They're pruning the grass because, you know, bison and cattle and whatnot, they don't eat it all the way. They don't eat it all up by the root. They leave it a lot of this um, manure, and then the birds come in, and they're eating the larvae, they're eating the flies, they're, they're eating all this stuff that ends up helping carry disease, right? 
He goes, so as, as he was looking at how are we going to, how are we going to replicate what happens in nature in order to create these, these nice fertile soils and the sustainability, he goes, well, we're not going to put all of our animals in a, in a, in a, in a pen herded up, you know, in, in feedlots. We're going to give them, we're going to rotate them through pastures just like they would do in, in nature. And then when we rotate them out, we're going to rotate these, these, you know, trucks they have with all the birds and these birds are going to go out and they're going to eat all the fly larvae and whatnot. And then what are they going to do? They're going to lay eggs. And this natural process that takes place because they're also scratching the manure. That's the other thing to keep in mind. They don't just come in and if you own chickens, you know this, they scratch at the ground. So what are they doing? Well, they're mixing the manure in with the soil. And so there's this natural process with no chemicals and no like commercial chemicals involved where your soil is being automatically replenished. It's healthier for your, your cattle um, and, and the people that are in the, the, the entities that are doing the work as far as managing your soil are things you're going to sell later, right? Like, cause you're either selling the beef or you're selling the eggs or, or, you know, whatever it may be. And so he's, he's actually using what he calls appreciating capital instead of depreciating capital. So in, instead of having to, you know, you know, buy a bunch of things to go out there and, um, you know, d- disperse your fertilizer and whatnot. He's using chickens to do it. He's letting birds do what birds naturally do. Uh, he's letting cows do what cows naturally do. He's letting pigs do. He, he calls it respecting the pigness of the pig. He's letting pigs do what they naturally do. And, and it has this rejuvenating quality to the soil. And he's letting each one of them work in symbiosis. And each one of them provides value and profit for his business. So this is the exact like opposite of what modern day farming has farming has turned into and, and you, not modern day. It, it's more of when, when you look at industrial and, and let's just, let, let's be, um, let, let's just, uh, let's try to be re- respectful for why yeah. industrial farming exists. Industrial farming exists because it creates certain efficiencies with respect to the raising of livestock, right. Or, or the, the, the planting of crops and what they call monocultures. So you have, you know, you have like acres and acres and acres of one crop, that provides efficiency with respect to what you've produced and getting it to market. So it lowers prices. Okay. Right now, listen, if, if you're, you know, we, we, we can all appreciate how difficult it can be to feed your family when prices go up. So when, when industrial farming is, is allowed for is the mass production of things at, at lower, at lower overall costs. Now what, what Joel will argue, and I think he does so effectively is that there's actually hidden costs to that approach that don't necessarily make it into the cost of your meat or the cost of your corn, it, 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 it's realized in other ways, whether it's the cost of your health, um, you know, whether, it, whether it's uh, you know, the fact that a, a lot of this ends up being subsidized by the government. Like Joel's not getting a bunch of subsidies to do what he's, he's doing. Um, a, a, lot of, a lot of what you see within your, your grocery store, that's been heavily subsidized by the government, by the farm bill, by things like that. And that is problematic. And I've had people tell me before, oh, Nick, you don't like subsidies until it's for agriculture. I'm like, nope, I don't like it then either. And that, that can make me really unpopular with people that otherwise agree with me on other topics. But I don't believe it's appropriate for the government to take money from other people and redistribute it based off of who has the best lobbyists. Even if I like your industry, I don't agree with it. Sorry. Because what it also does is it hides the, co- the actual cost of doing business the way we are. And so the, the problem with these, um, you know, when we, when we do these massive feedlots and things like that is like, yes, there's certain efficiencies you get with respect to the, the raising of that cattle, the butchering of it and everything else, the feeding of them. But one of the other examples he used as he was going through this farm tour is he said, look, 
He goes, I'm old enough to remember, right? When um, they, they, they grabbed a, a bunch of farmers together in Virginia, and we all sat down to listen to government-approved experts um, explain to us that they had a new way. They had a new way to save on feed costs uh, and on, on, on you know, protein specifically feed costs for our cattle. And what were they recommending? They were recommending when a cow dies, you grind it up and you include it into the feed for your cattle. And, and they, they had all the appropriate government experts to say, oh, yeah, this is going to help you reduce costs. It's going to reduce waste. It's going to do all these other the things. The whole cow? Just, yeah, re- re- chop it oh, up. I mean, I don't want to get I know into- where this is going. All right, so Joel's approach to this was, well, I, I, I don't have the same I don't have the same degrees in in um you, you know in biology. I may not be an expert. I may not be an expert, but I know this. I've never seen a cow eat a dead cow in the wild. I've never seen that happen in nature. Well, you know, fast forward several years. What what do we have? Well, we have mad cow disease. What's mad cow disease uh, result from? In, in part, it it's the you know it's it's the grinding up of certain aspects of the cows, feeding it to them. Um, and then that, that, that causing obviously some pretty big problems, which had massive effects. And this goes, this also goes to the whole issue of scale. Um, obviously consolidation and scale within a marketplace can be done for great efficiency and effectiveness, right? It's not always a bad thing. What you do need to understand though, is that if you, if you have, you know, not monopolistic, but, um, semi-monopolistic control, especially on, on areas where the government weighs in heavily on the side of, of one industry or one company over another, when they're getting it right, nobody notices, but the moment they get wrong, you're now affecting a marketplace far greater than you would have if you had smaller economies of, of, you know, smaller economies for these, these products. And, and so the, the question would be is, okay, well, wh- why don't we have more of these? Well, the reason why we don't have more of these is largely because of government regulation. It's, it's not as simple as me raising beef and then slaughtering the beef and then processing the beef and selling you beef. I've, I've got to get that done through an approved processor. Which and, raises the cost. And the USDA has a lot of influence on that. And, and people will sometimes ask, well, like, well wait a second. Why, why does the USDA or the FDA, or why do these federal agencies have all this authority on, on beef or livestock or the form, you know, meat that's not being sold across state lines because the interstate commerce clause of the constitution is the interstate commerce clause, not the intrastate commerce clause. So why do they have all this authority? Well, obviously a lot of times when, when you sell, there's third party vendors. So like I'm, I'm buying it and then I'm selling it to Safeway or something like that. Okay, great. Let's just assume that if it's crossing state lines, there's, there's some federal jurisdiction there, whether we like it or not, but, but why interest and why local? I mean, some of the stuff we're talking about like intra-county, Mm-hmm. Why, why can't I do that? Well, there have been states like Maine and others that have actually tried to tried to pass laws which said, okay, at the local level, if you, you have the ability to do X, Y, and Z at the local level, and, and because it's not crossing state lines, no reason for the feds to be involved. And, and representatives from federal agencies basically come down and say, if you pass this and you attempt to do it, we will pull the, the, the license processors that you have from your state. Well, now all of a sudden state legislators are forced with a, a proposition where if I pass this thing, which is perfectly legal under the constitution, perfectly within state jurisdiction, the federal government is now going to punish me and essentially create an environment where none of my larger producers in state will be able to get processing dates in state to be able to sell out of state. And it ends up being a form of federal extortion. That is what that is. And, and it's, it's one of these things that makes me so mad because every time, and I have carried, I have carried a lot of food freedom legislation at the state level. 
And it is amazing when you show up every single major industry or whatnot, even if you say, look, I, I, like I had a bill that said you, you can only, it, it, let's say you have a, a little farm and let's say your neighbors and, and people within that community like the way you farm and they want to, they want to be able to buy stuff from you. We said, okay, if you are buying directly from the farm or you're buying directly from the farm, which has a, a station at like a, um, a farmer's market, you can buy whatever you want from them buy whatever you want from them. You just got to sign a waiver or there's got to be a label on the food that lets the consumer know this has not gone through the normal like federal or state inspection process. Now, Joe Salatin at Polyface, he has a policy where anybody can go onto his farm 365 days out of the year and go look at what he's doing. Go look at how he's raising his, uh, his, his produce, his, his livestock. He does primarily livestock. You can go look at it. Because he wants you to know he's he's fine with these. Like if you're going to buy from me, you you I want you to know that what I'm doing is on the up and up. It's clean. It's a, it's a good system. It's a good it's a good service. But that's not good enough for some of these other people that that automatically go to this idea that if we if we allow you greater freedom to be able to purchase what you want or for you to be able to sell what you want to somebody that is knowingly purchasing it, well, if they get sick, that could adversely affect our industry. And I'll, and I'll never forget sitting there in, in, with a with a very, very large state group that represents a lot of people within agriculture. And they said, well, Nick, if you allow about, if you allow people to buy raw milk and somebody gets sick, it's not just going to affect raw milk. It's going to affect the entire industry. And I said, well, wait a second. I said, here we are sitting in this building that you own, which is about seven, like six stories. But this, this is huge. You guys obviously have a decent budget with everything that you do. Why don't you go out and advertise that your milk, your milk, which is pasteurized and homogenized and everything else, right? It is the safe milk. You can go do that. You can do that. But no, you want a law making it illegal for somebody else to buy raw milk. And that's that's the problem. Um and and Joel gets Joel gets into that. I have a question. Yeah. You were talking at the um start of this segment uh, um shortly after you um you had paused the video and you mentioned you know, like the difference between the way that, that Joel does this type of stuff versus the way that um, industrial farming works. But one thing that I, and I'm not an expert on this topic, so this is an actual question. Well, this I don't claim an, to be either, right? I, no, I, but you, I, know, are, I, know, you know this I stuff know more bit. than me. I, I've hung out with a lot of experts and spent <laughs> a lot of time I've never been experts. here. Let's yeah. put it like that. You've actually met him. You've seen the farm and everything. And you've also, you are also the host of the Y Minutes, and we've done a video before on yeah. Sri Lanka and why the economy of Sri Lanka collapsed. Now, for people that are watching or listening, they're probably thinking, okay, what does uh, homesteading in the Shenandoah Valley have to do with Sri Lanka? <laughs> yeah. Well, one of the things, there were many things wrong with Sri Lanka, but one of the things that was wrong with, with what happened with Sri Lanka, the economy is still in shambles right now, yeah. is that the government passed all of these organic farming bills. And what they basically did was is that they outlawed industrial farming yeah. in Sri Lanka and mandated that everything be organic in yeah. the in in the country, and it created one of the largest food shortages in the country's history. Oh, it did, like devastated their tea industry, which was one of their major exports. Completely yeah. destroyed some of the largest yeah. sectors of the Sri Lankan economy, and they still have. This was like two or three years ago when this happened, yeah. and they're still in the middle of like one of the worst economic crises that have ever hit that country. And they had a civil war yeah. that lasted like twenty five well, years. Here's, here's what the so what's the? I think you yeah. get where I'm going with the question. Like yeah. like like 
if organic is so good, why wasn't this great? And why it's like, didn't it work in Sri Lanka? Here, here's what it, here's what it works out to. It, it, it turns out that when e- even when the government gets something kind of right, they screw it up. Because what are they doing? They're not saying, hey, they're not saying, look, we recognize that there's some problems with the way that, you know, this, this sort of process is going within agriculture. And, and oh, by the way, it looks like that there's some emerging practices that would be better and perhaps healthier and maybe more sustainable long term. Um, so, hey, let's make sure that we allow these these ideas to be able to compete within the marketplace and find find their 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 various niche. No, no. There's like, well, oh, this is good. OK, it's now it's mandated. And, and that's the problem. This is one of the reasons why, even though I, I'm I'm a huge Joel Salatin fan, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of, um, you know, genuine, you know, composting as opposed to, um, you know, the, the chemicals and whatnot. You will never see me voting for legislation that says, okay, now in this and do only this. I'm not a fan of that. I, what I want is for people to be informed and what I want is for them to, for as many options as possible to exist within the marketplace so people can find where they fit within the marketplace. I also want people to be knowledgeable about the, 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 the benefits and the costs associated with different things. That, that's what I want. I don't want the government picking sides on this sort of thing. Now, now, obviously, you can come up with certain things where there are like very, very obvious negative externalities or, or whatnot to where there may be, you know, an appropriate role for government involvement because what you're doing is polluting, you know, downstream somebody else's property. That's a trespass. That's different. Um, but what we have right now is the government going full born to saying that we are going to subsidize and support this. We're going to create this garbage food pyramid that, that oh, oh, just so happens to, you know, mirror what we're trying to do with our agricultural subsidies. And then we're going to pretend like this is all good and expert based as opposed to, no, there's, there's some real flaws with it. There's, and there's some differing opinions. Um, you know, like, I, so that, that's, that's the difference here. Sri Lanka's Sri Lanka picked a heavy handed method in the opposite direction. Don't do it. Don't do heavy handed. How about that? And when the government gets involved, these farmers and industries prioritize what the government desires to see happen yeah. more than the customer and it eliminates us and our buying power from helping direct where these farmers go and what they do yeah yeah that, that that's honestly one of the the things that i until i until i met nick and was able to to like talk about some of these things in depth because for years nick and i would nick and i would have conversations for years many of which kind of resemble the podcast that we do now and one of the um, w- one of the things that I learned through talking with Nick about various different stuff, this being one of them, not literally the Sri Lanka case because that yeah hadn't yet happened, but but more of like government heavy-handed approach to we know that this is the solution, therefore we're going to mandate it by law and, and require it for everybody and every every single aspect, is that when the government gets involved in these type of questions, because Nick opened this episode with, you know, what happens when when government solutions go, you know, right up against the the type of life that you want to be living, right? And and what are you going to do in those situations? When 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 the government does, you know, engages in these type of questions with these type of solutions, what they're doing is creating a a terrible perverse incentive where producers now, business owners, farmers or or it, it, depending on the topic it could be a, a factory owner, yeah. either industry or agriculture, they're now incentivized to appease bureaucrats, yeah. not customers that are actually paying for the goods and service, because at that point, their biggest customer mm-hmm. is now the government. Is the government. Yeah. No, we, and we, we've talked about this before with the whole concept of, um, 
concentrated benefits and dispersed costs. If, if your grocery bill is, is, we'll say, $100 more expensive per year as a result of government subsidies or regulations or tariffs or whatever it is, well, that's wrong. Like you, you've had something taken from you as a result of that, and and you multiply that across the entire country. Well, now you're talking about, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars because we've got, you know, hundreds of millions of Americans shopping, or at least you know, tens of millions of Americans shopping for these products, and they're all paying, a, you know, more than they otherwise would be, but they don't notice it. And even if they notice it, they don't necessarily attribute it to what it is. They'll just say, oh, well, this that company's gotten more greedy or that. Right. Well, actually, what's what's happened is, is the store hasn't gotten more greedy. You're right that there is a company that has potentially gotten greedy. And what they've done is they've hired lobbyists yep. and they've told politicians, we want a tariff, we want a subsidy, we want a regulation, we want something that bars entry to the marketplace for our competition. We want to deny consumer. That's what it is. It's a consumer tax, ultimately. We want to deny consumers access to a product that competes with us in a way we don't like. Now, now, is there any area where that might be appropriate? And I would say when we're talking about things like coerced or slave labor, so the, the communist Chinese government using slave labor to produce products which then compete in, in other markets, I, I do think that there's there's realms in there where potentially a government come in and say, no, 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 we're, we're not you know, we're not going to assist with that. We're not going to support it because right. we find it morally reprehensible. Yeah. Um, but, but those categories are very narrow. Usually this is just about a company or an industry wanting to protect itself from competition. Real quick. I want to get back to the video of Joel, but this is a great question from the making the argument channel from ACE O spades. Are you guys going to talk about how the farming industry is pretty much a monopoly spread across a few companies like Tyson, for example, how did we let them become such a monopoly? So I, I think that's a good question. Uh, so I, I want it. Here's the interesting thing about monopolies. A, a lot of people believe that monopolies are a result of unfettered capitalism. The opposite is true. So the, the closest you ever came to a monopoly in the United States um, where, where you didn't have the government directly involved probably would have been Standard Oil. So Standard Oil under the Rockefeller started, I believe the company actually started in the 1850s. And by the 1880s or 90s, I think he had about 90% market share. So we, even then, he didn't have a total monopoly. The question is, is what happened to the price of kerosene during that time? It plummeted dramatically year after year to where, it, one, it, it I, we kind of joke sometimes that it saved the whales because kerosene replaced whale oil as one of the primary mechanisms for, for lighting. Um, and, and, and two, it, it greatly expanded, um, industry within the United States and, and actually caused a, a significant, um, increase in the quality of life across the board. So, so why was it that 90% market share in that case was, was actually a good thing for consumers and in other cases, it's a bad thing. Well, usually it's, it's a question of how involved is the government? Because if, if a company does such a good job in the marketplace producing a product or service that the, that the quality and price is so good that nobody can really compete with them or effectively compete with them at scale, that's not a bad thing for consumers. And this idea that, well, they'll come in and they'll arbitrarily or they'll artificially lower their prices, they'll run everybody else, and then they'll in their, increase their prices significantly. The problem is try to find a historical example of that actually working. Not even Standard Oil yeah. was able to 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 um, get a hundred per. It, like, like people forget this. Standard Oil people teach about this in schools. I remember learning about it in public school. You know, Standard Oil at its peak controlled over ninety percent of the United States oil market. That sounds like a monopoly. Ninety percent of the entire oil market. What they leave out of that is that when the government stepped in and broke up Standard Oil 
in the in the early 1900s. I think it was the first decade mm-hmm. of the of of the 20th century. I think it was 1908, maybe. Mm-hmm. Point. It was in that time yeah. frame when the government stepped in and forcibly court ordered broke up Standard Oil. That that's the reason that we have Exxon today. Yeah. They're, they're they're a successor to Standard Oil. Um, when that happened, Standard Oil's um, share of the marketplace was less than 90%. It had actually been falling for many years, for over a decade. Now, their profits were still going up. The company was still growing. The company was was very successful. Well, it was competing internationally as well. But, well, I'm talking domestically. Yeah, I know. So so it wasn't like Standard Oil was failing. But what was happening was that the market was growing and Standard Oil could not maintain perpetually 90% of the entire marketplace. And it was a relatively, that up until that point in time, it was a relatively free market, certainly more free than today's yeah. market. And so I find it so interesting that by the time Standard Oil was broken up by the government in the name of you know, anti-monopoly laws, antitrust, antitrust laws, all that type of stuff, their share of the U.S. oil market had been shrinking from 90%, they were down to like the 80s or 70s by that point because other competitors had popped up and they simply were not able to actually create the monopoly that we're all taught, you know, that that Rockefeller had actually created. Well, and, and the the important thing, so that's like the first part of the question, right, is is the, so the sort of monopolies that we, we talk about as being like truly uh, problematic um, are, are always, always, like 100% of the time, a result of government intervention into the economy. By the way, it was 1911 when they were broken, okay. not 1908. It, it's either, <laughs> I, I figured it was after Roosevelt. Um, it, it was, um, it, it's always been a case of the government stepping in and either directly granting monopolies. So it used to be that in a lot of countries, when I, the United States, or excuse me, not the United States, but governments would grant monopolies to like various nobles or lords right. or whatnot. And they were the only ones that could, you know, produce X, Y, or Z or import X, Y, or Z or whatever it is. Um, in the United States, we don't have the United States government granting monopolies. What yeah. we do have is them passing legislation which gives preferential treatment to certain entities within the economy, either in the form of subsidies, uh, tax breaks, or regulatory um, capture. And so for for some of these companies, and you see this within, and and it's interesting, the more the government gets involved, the more you see consolidation and monopolization. We see this within healthcare. The more you see consolidation of control over hospitals. You see this within certain elements of agriculture where you have more consolidation because you get to a point where those concentrated benefits and dispersed costs create an environment where they're able to pass laws that are beneficial to them and hurt their competition. And again, sometimes this is big and obvious in the form of like massive subsidies to agriculture. And other times it's less obvious. And, and it's almost, especially on the regulatory side, it's almost always done in the name of we're going to protect, we have to provide for public safety. We have to make sure that the food supply is, is good and healthy and it's not going to hurt you. Uh, so that, that way we can encourage commerce and transactions and people are confident when they walk into the grocery store that the milk they're buying isn't going to poison them. Okay, fine. Until you realize that a lot of these laws, when you look at it, like bills that I pass where I'm like, if I can, I buy directly from my neighbor without you guys coming in and inspecting. No. Why? Well, because you could get sick and then you could blame the entire meat industry. Dude, no, no. This is now just saying we don't want to compete with smaller providers. We want to be able to consolidate. And force them out of the market. And, and, and force them out of the marketplace. We want to make it so difficult for them to compete with the big boys that the only way that you can actually get into this industry is if you collaborate with the big boys. And so th- that's where I see some of the problem. with. And, and again, it's not because I think, you know, 
Tyson is all evil or, or Smithfield is all evil. It's more because I think there's a perverse incentive within th this collaboration. I, I love it when people say public-private partnership. is like, oh, well, it must be okay if it's a public-private partnership. Oh, yeah. You know what a monopoly is? A public-private partnership. Yep. So, yeah, don't don't be fooled by that. Nick, um, we've had a lot of new people join the stream since we last were wa uh, watching this with Joel. Give us an update. So uh, here, here's we're uh, we're, I'm going to go into this last part about Joel, and then we're going to get into some of the specifics of, of, of homesteading using some of the, the techniques Joel talks about. But what we've talked about here is kind of an introduction to Joel Salatin. If you don't know him, go check out Polyface Farms. We're also going to have some more things that we put out about him. Great guy. just And I don't mean just very effective at what he does. I mean just a genuinely good human yes. being. Um, get up there and visit Polyface Farms if you're anywhere near Virginia. And even if you're not, fly. You'll, you'll love it. Um, he does a lot of stuff during the summer that's really neat. He has like a rogue food conference, which is awesome. He's um, really well known. I, I yeah. remember. Um, He's I been on Joe Rogan before. I mean, yeah. I, I was talking to some family members, some aunts and uncles. This was like three or four months ago. And, and there was just some conversation. Th these are people that are not like super political or anything like that. And they were just having a conversation, and then somebody brought up Joel Salatin, and all, everybody in the room was like, oh, yeah, I know this guy up in the Shenandoah Valley, runs yeah. Polyface Farms. And I was like, because at that point, I had known who he was through you. Yeah. And so I was like, what? How Like, like how did my own family like know who yeah. this guy is? Apparently, he's very oh, he's well a, He's known. a big deal. And, and so we, what we did is we, we talked a little bit about his experience, his family's experience in Venezuela. They used to live over there when the junta came into power. They essentially had to flee the country, lost everything. They ended up starting over in Swope, Virginia, Augusta County, Shenandoah Valley. And um, he, he's talked about some of his experiences and what they do. And, and one of the, one of the big things, if I had to kind of like sum up and Joe would do a better, Joel would do a better job. But if I had to sum it up, it's the, they try to replicate what they find in nature as they raise livestock and they engage in agriculture and instead of, you know, just, uh, you know, massive feedlots or, you know, massive amounts of, you know, chemicals and whatnot. They, they really try to replicate what they see in nature. And what's so wonderful about it is that it, it provides someone like me with 10 acres Right. Or if you had a, if you had a, if you had a quarter acre, there's things on here that you could do that Jules, he shows people how to scale. You got a quarter acre. Here you go. You got five acres. Here you go. You got a hundred acres. Here you go. And, and he's got, I think, again, I think over a thousand and he shows you how to scale in order to, you know, raise livestock, especially he doesn't do as much on the, he does more on the raising, not the growing side, uh, but he does do some of the growing as well. And, and it, again, it's fascinating. So let, let's go. I want to go to one other clip and then we're going to get into some of the specifics of homesteading and how you can actually start. Shannon Rice on the MTA channel said, it would be really nice if the government would stop treating us like we were all trying to unalive ourselves. Oh yeah. That would be nice. Wouldn't it? Yeah. Because they think, they think unaliving you is their job and they don't want any competition, but <laughs> All so, right, let's go. Let's so go. Here's here's the deal. Here's the deal. we're gonna go with the last clip, and I want This is this is a specific instance because I asked Joel. I said, "Hey, has there ever been a case you fought now for decades? Not just you, your family, your father before you, the whole deal. You have finally reached a, a certain level of success. Was there ever a point when you ever thought it was all gonna go away?" And we're gonna listen to his answer on that one. Has there ever been a time where you guys thought? We might lose it. Yes. Yes. That time, I can't give you the year, but it was, uh, it was in, it was in the late nineties, maybe 96, 95. Um, and <clears throat> we got a knock on the door. Food safety inspection service. It's just like on TV mm. guy, you know, we, I go to the door guy he's got his big badge like the fbi you know i'm from food safety inspection service 
we have impounded all of your beef at the slaughterhouse. You're being accused of selling uninspected product. We've confiscated it. And, um, and not only that, you know, your, your, chicken, your chicken processing is illegal. And, um, and uh, that was a big deal. Um, and I remember like yesterday coming out, I was moving the chickens one morning during that, during that week. And uh, I was just kind of, you know, praying and thinking it over. And it wasn't an audible voice, but it was, it was really a, a, a profound just impression on my head for such a time as this. That's what Mordecai said to Esther in the book of Esther in the Old Testament uh, when she went into King Ahasuerus and, and pled for, the, uh, for, for the, her people, the Jews. And, uh, and, and she said, well, I can't go in. You, know, you, you can't go before the king unless he extends his scepter or, or he, can, he kills you. And uh, Mordecai told her, he said, for such a time as this, and uh, and it was just a very profound uh, profound thing, and I took a lot of heart back from that, and we ended up you know we ended up winning, winning that battle, uh, but um, but yeah, it's uh, you know if you've never if you've never had a visit like that, what we've learned from that experience is if you've never had a visit like that, you you. A, you don't believe it's possible. What? What do you mean? A, and 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 B, um, you just can't appreciate the the um, the heartless the heartless bureaucracy of of these people. Um, and if if you want to see me go apoplectic, just tell me when when there's something heartless like this going on, I'm just doing my job. Pause right there. This part, um, you know, again, I, I think it, I remember sitting there and, and Hamilton and I were up there when, when we were doing this interview and, and we, we wanted to do, we wanted to ask this question because we did want to understand um, what, what it was like to be in that situation. Because at this point he's talking about the nineties. Remember they lost everything in Venezuela in the in the sixties, early sixties, came back to the United States in sixty one. Still fought forever to try to get his dad fought forever to try to get back the farm. Couldn't do it. They bought this piece of, of farmland that was just devastated. Um, you you will you will see when we put out the the full the full interview um, all of the things they went through to build this back up and create something that is absolutely gorgeous. And the quality, the quality of the products that they produce like local restaurants and not just local Google, Google tried to get Joel Salatin to personally staff their like cafeterias and everything else. And Joel told him to go find a local farmer. Right. So, so this is like the, 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 the links they have gone to in order to do this correctly. And then, Food safety inspection officer shows up and says, you've been accused, so we've confiscated everything that you have right now. Anybody in agriculture, whether you do small, whether you do large, will tell you, agriculture is not like other industries. Somebody confiscates everything that you have right there, especially if they're not taking care of it. And oh, by the way, if anybody's confused on whether or not the government takes care of livestock that they have impounded, the answer is no. This could mean, this could be it for you. This could be it for you. 
And, and he goes through the process of explaining how he, he's sitting here. He's like, okay, well, I have the right to face my accuse. What am I, what am I being, you, you're being accused of doing this, this, and this. Okay, by who? Well, it's an informant. Oh, well, gosh. I, I mean, don't get me wrong. I understand why it might be important to protect informants in certain situations. But can we also acknowledge that if you're not going to get pushed into a, a large legal battle or a problem with something else, it, it could create some really bad situations where you could lose your entire business only to come out the other side and be like, oops, I guess you were innocent. And what was his crime? I mean, his beef was at a processing plant. Oh, you're, you're selling your chickens illegally. Yeah, because heaven knows civilization never existed and we all died eating chicken before we had massive government bureaucracies in order to check it. Especially for someone that's selling on a much smaller percentage or a much smaller volume than, than all these other companies that have got their feet in, in huge feedlots or big chicken houses. And again, I'm not, I'm not trashing those other people, but let's, let's talk about the way he raises his chickens because I've seen it. The way he raises his chickens is he has these little chicken tractors. For those of you who don't know what that is, it's like a portable chicken coop, right? And he, and he puts about maybe, uh, I think it's like uh, 75 per, per, per chicken coop area. And every single day they go out there, they water, they feed them, and they move them. So they have fresh new grass every single day. Do you know how your meat chickens are being raised in a chicken house? They are pretty much put in a small container, right? And they are fed nonstop for nine weeks until you slaughter them, right? Lights on all the time. His chickens are literally being out and moved. We've tried this method for the first time this year. I got 25 Cornish crosses. We put them out. You know, Luke made the chicken tractor. And every day we go out there and move them. Those chickens are happy. They are healthy. They're not just getting, you know, food. They're, they're, they're not just getting like the, the food that we give them. They're, they're scratching around. They're getting bugs, the whole deal. They got fresh air. They had good ventilation. Like we, we don't have disease problems with our chickens. But that's who they're going to come and shut down. Now, again, we'll, we'll put out the whole interview, but he manages, he manages to fight through this and win his case in part because he ended up calling his local delegate. He ended up calling his, his, his local state senator, you know, both parties at that point, and they both held him work through this. But this is what I'm talking about. We're, we're, at, we're at a point right now where somebody that's not doing something wrong, not hurting anybody, very open about how he raises his livestock. His customers love him. No, no, we're, gonna set, we're going to shut you down because we've decided that you've, you've broken the rules on some level. And we've decided that we're going to impound everything and you're going to be guilty until, until you're proven innocent. Don't you just love the excuse that was given? Uh, oh, I'm just because it, it sorry. I'm just I'm doing just my doing job. my job. My that job. is, and and look, I, I understand. I understand that some jobs are difficult, and some jobs have there, there's gray areas, right? There's gray areas where you have to operate. But I look at other ones, and I'm like, do you really think you're saving the world right now? Is that what you're doing? You really think you're you really think you are in, in enforcing something that is just so noble and so necessary? that we've got to destroy this guy in his business because maybe you violated maybe you violated some state regulation on on x y or z i mean it's you're never supposed to it's it's always taboo to make the comparison and i get why and it's overdone a lot but it's We've there's, heard, there's been we've a heard, lot of we've heard that excuse yeah. before yeah we 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 we've heard you know the i'm just doing my job excuse before and to varying degrees that has led to tragedy and they're not all the same, obviously, but but that that is the famous excuse of government officials that that violate people's 
personal liberties, either yeah. either either violating their life, their 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 liberty, or, or or their property. Yeah, and I'm sorry, but you're like I said, you know, it's taboo to bring it up, and you're not supposed to. But like, there's nothing incorrect with what I said there. That we have heard that excuse before yeah. when people have violated your life, liberty, or property, all around the world for many many instances in history and i don't just mean in nuremberg i mean i mean many times in history and it's it's an illegitimate excuse i feel like because what you're basically saying is don't blame me blame the bureaucracy you're part of the bureaucracy so here, here's the here's the here's the argument this is why I, I i always try to be reasonable with this i understand that we have a system for deciding what our laws and regulations are I understand that if you're a part of the enforcement mechanism for that, you're a police officer, you're an inspector or whatnot, you are supposed to enforce the law. There is a reason why we allow for discretion because we understand that sometimes the law is intending to get at one thing and can accidentally get other things. And we want people to be able to use their discretion, whether it's the officer on the street that is saying, you know what? Yeah, this kid technically broke the law, but I don't want him to have a criminal record. He just needs, you know... It, it, he needs some intervention. He doesn't need a, a, a criminal record. We, we want there to be cases where, where judges can say, I understand that you still broke the law, but I understand the extenuating circumstances, so you're going to go into diversion, not prison. The problem is, is that we have situations now where when somebody does something horrible, it's like, well, gosh, you know, your dad was mean to you, so I guess that's why you, you killed this person and, and robbed their liquor store. And then when it comes to guys like Joel Salad, it's like, oh, no, that one we got to crush down hard on because, you know, food safety. This is the part where people feel like they're living in clown world. We make criminals out of ordinary people and we make heroes out of criminals. Yeah, that, 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 that is honestly what the, the left has, has done. I said this in a, in a podcast um, the other day and I said something like the worse off a person or a group acts, the more the left likes them. And I used as an example, look at how the left treats Antifa or BLM or, or really any of the people in like Portland or Seattle, the people that are like shooting up on the streets that are like robbing stores and stuff like that. Look at how they treat those people. Oh, they're victims. Mm -hmm. They're marginalized communities. And look at the way they're and trying then, to treat someone that's trying to sell you raw milk. And, and, and then look at how they treat somebody like Joel Salatin or, or look at how they treat. I, I used the example at the time of parents at a school board meeting like. I, I think that there's there's obvious maybe, maybe it's because people are busy and they live their lives and so they don't necessarily like you know piece everything together but but if you do take the time to just think about how groups of people that commit arson yeah and and grand larceny and rob storefronts and and look at how district attorneys look look at how how att attorneys general and and you know states like California or, or Illinois or Washington state like like look at how they treat those people and then look at how they treat some like you said somebody that wants to sell raw milk yeah well and and here's here's where here's where we're at we're going to go into this next segment um we we've got a ton more with Joel Salatin but like I said I want to do that justice and we're going to put it into a final product that we're going to make yep. available for everyone um what I want to do now is I want to go into kind of the the initial statement we kick this all off with if you got canceled, if you got fired, if you needed to pull your kids out of school and now all of a sudden you're going from a two-income family to a one-income family, what are the different ways you can be more resilient? And and 
the reason why we focus on this, and I think we're going to have a whole series where we're really focused on this whole intentional communities. And, you know, we've got our 90 day challenge going where yep. our audiences, yep. you know, and you can go on circle. People are sharing their different experiences, some really cool things that I never yep. thought of before. Link in description. Yeah. Where, where they're, where they're going through and they're explaining things that they're doing, whether it's, you know, learning new skills, developing new capabilities, um, you know, finding the ways to be more, you know, become more financially diverse. Um, and, and all of that is about the resiliency side of this. It's like, we all understand that we're living in a time right now where it's probably easier to get fired, canceled, or, or have to drastically change some aspect of your life because of the way our culture is going and the way it's affecting our laws, our corporate culture and everything else. And, and the thing that I've always said is like, rather than looking at this as, Oh, bother, we got to go do the, these things are fun. Mm-hmm. And, and I, and again, different people have different ideas of fun. You know, when we talked about like the intellectual pursuits, Christian was more excited when we talked about like, you know, raising pigs, Christian is like, I'm good. I'll just eat the pork you make. Right. <laughs> right? But we're, we're going to go into a couple of things right now on, on, if you are interested, if you're interested in kind of developing more resiliency, where do you start? We're going to do one of these for, we're doing this right now for homestay. We're going to do another one from homeschooling. We're going to do some other stuff. Christian, I'm going to work with Christian on some of the stuff too, on the, on some of the financial stuff, but here's where I want to do, like, there's kind of four categories I want to talk about stages of homesteading, right? And this isn't coming from any like fancy book. This is coming from me. And let me just say right off the bat, I'm not at the expert stage of this, like Joel Salatin expert. Some of the other people we're going to talk about Jess from Roots and Refuge, Justin Rhodes, the Abundance Plus crew, those guys are experts and, and they are, and they are awesome. And they're, and they're just fun to listen to, but there's people considering it, right? And they're sitting right now going through like, you know, what do I need to do in order to, to like really you know, figure out what I can do with what I have? Right. So I got 10 acres. You can do a ton on 10 acres. And out of my 10 acres, about a little under half of that is pasture. And then the other half is, is, um, you know, woods, I, you know, but when I was on that lunatic farm tour, we had people that were literally living in an apartment, learning how to grow stuff either through, you know, maybe like kind of small hydroponics or, yep. or just stuff that they could do within the apartment as they looked for property that they could move, get themselves like three or four acres and, and really expand out from there. And so the, the reason why I share that story is I want people to understand that you'd be amazed at what you can do with, with relatively little space. You mm-hmm. do not have to have a thousand acres. You don't got to have 10 acres. So if you're, if you're going into that considering, here's some of the places that I, I would encourage you to take a look at. One is we got the website here for uh, Polyface Farm, the farm of many faces. You can shop Polyface Meats. Again, you can go and visit this. Uh, I want to go back again. Oh, we will. We will. We're, we. I was supposed to go back for the Rogue Food Conference. I wasn't able to make it. I had a scheduling conflict, but I, I want to get to that next year. There's some other stuff that we're already looking at, at doing uh, back in. But during the summer, they have got a ton of stuff going on for for kids, for adults. I mean, it's it's just awesome, and it is a gorgeous you, place. You can see here the mountains in the back. Yeah. And when you're like in the middle of the farm, you're just surrounded by these mountains, and it's gorgeous. Yeah, it's beautiful. beautiful. Like, but, I, I want to root off a comment real quick. This is very encouraging from Homesteading Crazy. My kids are homeschooled. I don't have a job anymore because of computers, and I'm starting a homestead at 60 years old to make sure my family can eat. Yeah. Go, Joel. You rock. Yeah. That's no, pretty that's encouraging. Awesome. That's awesome. Um, Yeah, so – and, and – the other, the great thing about going to Joel, if you're considering doing this now, if you live in Virginia, this is, this is easier. Cause you can just, you know, maybe hike up there for a weekend and, and go on the tour and whatnot. Um, and again, he focuses, he focuses on livestock and, and what he raises primarily are, um, um, chickens, meat, chickens, rabbits, um, laying hens, beef, uh, turkeys and, uh, pigs, okay. right? So kind of, kind of the, the full spectrum of, of, 
uh, any of the meats that you would typically want on your dinner plate. He does it and he does it at various scales and he shows you how to do it from a micro scale all the way up to something where like, this is your job. Like this right. is your main source of income. Well, and real quick, before we move on from this, Joel is probably as passionate about teaching yeah. this practice as he is doing it. And the, the way that he teaches this, he's practiced it and he's a good communicator. He makes things simple. He makes them exciting. And so going on one of his tours with the family would be a really incredible yeah. experience because he, he is committed to making sure that everyone is, that is there understands what's going on. Well, and, and he will, uh, he, this is, this is so important. Jordan Peterson actually talks about this where he talks about, be careful who you share good news with mm. uh, and who you share, you know, bad news with, right? Because yeah, wanna, don't share good news with me. Cause I'm too much of a, <laughs> he's like, you want, you want to surround, you want to surround yourself and you want to be able to take criticism from people that want you to succeed. Yeah. And, and I've, I've had to take criticism from Joel on some of the things I've tried to do in the legislature when I was, and, and I was working with him and like, how do we do this better and whatnot? He's well, I, you know, I, Nick, I don't think you should have done it this way. Maybe do it this way. And, and the thing is, is that when Joel provides that, I know it's because he wants what's best for yeah. the community. He wants what's best for, for me as I'm, as I'm trying to make things happen for him and, and, you know, fight for food freedom. When, when you are surrounding yourself with people that want you to succeed, um, and want you to be successful in this endeavor. You, you will be able to learn a great deal. You'll be able to, you know, take that criticism because you know it's it's there with the best intention. Now, there's always going to be people. Let me just say this right now. There's always going to be people in every single industry, every single community that are just you, you're not doing anything right, and that's not the right way, and you should do it this way. And it, you know what? Screw them. Anyway, <laughs> all right. But Joel's not like that. Joel's great. Let's go to the next page. I want to show people. Um, so I. I Poly faces where I went to when I looked at a lot of like raising my livestock. So right okay. now, what am I doing with that? Well, like I said, I have I have twenty five Cornish crosses. I might actually end up doing seventy five. Those are chickens, right? Yes, those are those okay. are meat chickens. Just want to make sure those are meat chickens. Some people like more of the heritage breeds. The heritage breeds of chickens are, are okay. great. It's kind of considered kind of more organic. Um, not not that you can't have you know or, organic you know Cornish crosses, but the, the point is is that the, the heritage breeds tend to not produce as much meat as the Cornish crosses, which were kind of like bred for this. The other thing I'm doing is um, I'm raising pigs again this year, but last time I pretty much had them in a, in a small, in a small element that I came down, you know, we fed them. There's only two in there, but it was still small and pigs will turn. Like if you've got a, let's say a 20 by 20 space, pigs will, and, and let's say it's fully overgrown and the whole deal, pigs will turn that into the surface of the moon in a week, right? Like they do it quick. So Joel rotates his pigs through and he puts them out into the forest and whatnot. So like I said, I have about six acres of like wooded area. And um, one of the one of the things that we've done, are you about to pull up the reel? I, I am. All I right, am. We'll, we'll show you a reel real quick to give you an idea of kind of our setup. And this was early on. One line, like literally one line of electric fencing okay. through, through the woods that I have in there. And my pigs are currently turning poison ivy into bacon. Right. They, they are, they're not only one that reduces your feed costs significantly. It's, it's easy to keep them pinned in because pigs are smart, okay. which means the first couple of times they get zapped, they start learning. Don't touch the line. Right. And then what they do is you just, you, you can move that line within your woods. You can rotate them around within there. And you're, you're not only reducing your feed costs, you're not only producing your li your pigs, a far better life. than they were just sitting in one little area, confined area, but you're also rejuvenating the soil within the, within the woods. And so, like I said, I'm getting rid of my pigs are turning my poison ivy into bacon. I don't know if you guys know this. I don't got a lot of use for poison ivy. I got a ton of use for bacon. <laughs> All right, but yeah, you can show that clip real quick if you want. Okay, we, we just have to. 
Ron Swanson once said that uh, there's never been a sadness that couldn't be cured by breakfast food. And he's right. I mean, just look at him. They're adorable. Hi, breakfast food. <laughs> wow. Hi, think, breakfast food. You're going to get canceled. <laughs> I think that's not, not so far. I think it's got like 800,000 views. But um, all right. So that's Livestock Polyface Farm. I think they do a great job of kind of explaining. Okay. They've got a lot of books for like micro homesteading, Polyface Farm designs. If you want to use some of the same designs they use, it's great. Next, Roots and Refuge. Jess from Roots and Refuge, like her and her husband and her kids and all, like just a wonderful family. Um, you know, I got to meet, uh, you know, I got to meet Jess at the Homesteaders Conference that we have here in Virginia in October. Uh, it's coming up in October in Frederick County, Virginia. Um, like Jess and her family are just like absolutely, you know, sweet, excited about doing this. I think they, I believe they started in Arkansas. I think they've since moved to South Carolina. They got a bigger uh, piece of property so they could do more. Um, her gardening stuff is like just spot on. Okay. Just spot on. She, she does excellent stuff. I do a, um, we, every once in a while, um, you know, we'll, we'll tag each other back and forth. Usually I'm, I'm tagging her on something I've done on Instagram. I, I had a horrible time with my seed starts this year. And I, I did this Instagram reel where I said, if you're doing your seed starts and you think you've come up with something truly ingenious that Jess from Roots and Refuge hasn't thought of, it's not that she hasn't what? thought of it. It's that it probably doesn't work. What do you mean by seed starts? Seed starts. Seed starts. So okay. instead of like going and buying plants at like Lowe's or a nursery or whatnot, you can start your own seeds. And depending on your growing zone, you know, most of them, you, you can't do that if you, you know, have frost still coming for most of your, your right. stuff. So you got to start them indoors. You got to have your grow lights. You got to have your area set up. And, um, Jess is just really good at this. She is phenomenal with like really efficient within like, you know, getting her seed starts together. She's in zone. I think she's in zone eight. Uh, we're in zone seven, which that just tells you kind of when you can start growing things. Okay. Um, so, but she, she does a great job. So you can learn so much from there. And that is actually one of the most efficient ways to, to grow your vegetables and stuff like that. If you're going to the store and you're buying everything, that's usually going to cost you between like maybe four to $15 per plant. Right. Whereas a, a packet of seeds is going to cost you like two bucks. So if you can get good at, at doing your seed starts, you can actually save a ton of money, but it is not as easy as it looks. At least it wasn't for me, right? Um, so I ended up having to buy a lot of plants. I, some of my seed starts took and went fine, but I learned a lot about that. Also, the thing that she teaches that is so cool, she was the first person that I, I learned how to do this, and that's trellis gardening. Or, or think of it as like vertical gardening. Okay. So if you don't got a lot of space, like, like, let's say you got a decent size yard, but that's it, right? We're not talking acres. We're, we're, we're talking like you got a quarter acre yard. Well, vertical gardening will let you drastically increase the amount you can, you can garden in a, in a small area, not to mention the fact it looks awesome. So like in one of my areas, I've got these archways and all they are is cattle panels and tea stakes. So you can go to you can go to Tractor Supply, get yourself a, a $34 cattle panel, right, which is going to be like 16 feet, and you turn that into an archway, and then you grow up like your cucumbers or your tomatoes or beans or whatever, and it, it ends up creating those like this really beautiful lush green archway in your garden. Because one of the things that's cool and one of the things that she really you know kind of expresses is this whole idea that the garden shouldn't just be like this area that you go to because you have to, it should be an area you want to spend time in and that you actually enjoy and is visually appealing. And, and she's just got a lot of strategies for making that happen and to do so with like very little money. 
Mm. And, and that's one of the things I just love about uh, Jess from Roots and Refuge. Um, this is Abundance Plus. Now, a lot of the people that we're talking about here, like in the middle, that's Justin Rhodes. Justin Rhodes uh, became really popular. He did the Homestead Tour with his family. They've, him and his family, too, have been very, very open about their successes, their failures, I mean, difficult things they've had to overcome. Really nice family. Got to meet them briefly at the Homesteaders Conference. Then you got Jess from uh, Jess and her husband from Roots and Refuge. Uh, Prairie um, woman right there, Joel Salatin on the end. Uh, there's some other people here that I don't know as well um, or, or, or or haven't watched as much of their stuff yet. But um, like I have a membership to this. Like it's a, they have like three different membership styles. I think I got like the $15 one, which is you know per month. It's mid-tier. But they've got so many good videos on this on if – like I'm, I'm a YouTube guy. There's a lot of stuff you can find yeah. for free on YouTube. One of the things I like about Abundance Plus is that it does really get into the the weeds and helping you work through stuff. There's some also some extra stuff that you can get on Abundance Plus that I don't think you can get on just YouTube. But you're going to get some of the best advice you could ever get from a whole swath uh, of YouTubers. Um, and and it's just just great stuff. Really great stuff. Hashtag not an ad. No, yeah, not an ad. I got, I got no like abundance plus. I'm not. I'm a member. I'm not like a contributing member. I, I pay for my subscription. Um, I just think that a lot of the people that I that I watch and have really respected and have taught me a lot, mm-hmm. um, are are all in this one area. Um, and and I also, I'm gonna be honest. I also like giving them money. Right? Yeah, <laughs> like I, I like giving them money because I feel like they're giving me and my family a, a lot of value. All right, we got a question here, real quick, from Homestead and Crazy. Question: I would like to help others learn. Any advice for someone just starting on social media to teach? I would be very grateful. Can, can I jump in here? Yeah, please. Hamilton's Ab- a guru at this. Absolutely. The fun part about this is there's so many different ways to get started, but I'd highly recommend practicing creating short form video on Instagram, on YouTube Shorts, on TikTok. I mean, TikTok is probably one of the, the platforms that are lacking in homesteading content compared to YouTube and Instagram. And just pick up your phone, film a video, download an app like Splice or something of that nature, learn how to edit it within the mobile app on your phone, and just do it. Just do it time and time and time again. It's going to take practice and it's going to be hard, but eventually you're going to get some traction and it's going to be great. And you may have a unique way of teaching this um, that others within the homesteading community don't. Um, and so that would be my recommendation. You know, Nick has obviously had a lot of success on social, so I'd, I'm interested to hear what his recommendation is. is I, as well. I was going to go say, I was going to say start with short form because I think it's the yep. easiest to do. Um, you know, when you do the long form content on YouTube, that's really helpful. But a lot of times, some of the best advice you can get in kind of getting used to how do I word things? How do I title things so that people are actually going to find it? Um, doing like a quick 60 second reel was like, here's the three steps to whatever, plant tomatoes yep. or, or something like that. That That is very easy for people to consume, to save, to share. And, and that will kind of let you know what the audience is generally interested in. And then you can kind of build from there as you gain that experience. And allow the audience to help guide you where to go next. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, all right. Let me see. I want to make sure. I thought we had another question. Um. I got his outlaw feminist. Hey there. I just wanted to say I'm a recovered woke person. Your sanity was inspirational in that. I don't know if that's directed to me or someone in this chat, but Hey, thank you very much for being here and watching. Really appreciate it. Um, Abby says, I'm going to try organic gardening. There's a man in Oregon has a big organic garden and does tours. Yeah, that's awesome. The, the, I'll tell you what, what's, what's crazy to me is like years ago, if you would have told me that I was interested in organic, I'd have been like, whatever, that's, that's hippy dippy stuff. <laughs> I, I will tell you what got me more interested in it one of my kids having, um, food allergies. 
And, and who is it? And starting what? to and starting to wreck. Well, if I wanted to say, oh, I'd I'm say. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> who is, uh, yeah. Tell me more yeah. about your personal. <laughs> uh, but no, ha- having having food allergies and then starting to recognize, especially as I was trying to I was trying to get you know back in shape and whatnot, and just having no idea what was actually in a lot of the food that you got at the store. And, and, <laughs> I'm and such and, a jerk. No, you're fine. You're fine. <laughs> Moving on. Moving on. But um, what it, what it really came down to was. Um, I, I just wanted to be more knowledgeable about what was happening. Yeah. And and what ended up happening was a lot of the people I had I had seen talking about organic stuff seemed to be coming from kind of the left wing of the spectrum. Now, it was an important lesson for me that just because I disagreed with them on politics doesn't mean they didn't have something valuable to contribute with respect to problems within our food system. Um, but I remember listening to a guy on actually a libertarian website. He was just talking about eating healthier and he was talking about whole foods. And he was like, look, when a diet tells you that a diet Coke is good for you, but an avocado is bad for you, there's something wrong with that flipping diet. And so it is, I'm saying this as I've got like yeah. cans of Dr. Pepper oh, look, next and to I, me. Look, and I still, I still eat some crappy stuff, right? Like I am not here to pretend that I, oh, I'm all organic. I'm not. But it made me more conscientious and it made me more, it made me want to delve more into this. And as I was, as we were kind of looking at our family and our kids and their health and okay, what can we do um, that, that will be better? And here's what you, here's what you end up finding out when you're growing your own stuff. And when you pick it off the plant and then go make salsa brother, I, I'm sorry, pace, pace picante and got nothing on that. That's so awesome. It's just it's just better quality. All right, another one, Melissa K. Norris. Uh, Melissa K. Norris, I believe, is out in Washington State. Um, when I was planting fruit trees, so this year uh, I, I've planted fruit trees before. Okay, let me let me let me rephrase that. I went to Lowe's, bought a bunch of fruit trees, and stuck them in the ground. I don't know. <laughs> Did you kill them? Oh, I killed them. I okay. I I butchered them. I'm pretty sure that that. If you would look at the fruit trees that I first tried to plant and take, it, it was some sort of violation of the Geneva Convention because I just, uh, it was, I, I felt so stupid and, and frustrated because fruit trees are something you plant now and in three years you get fruit, right? So it's a long process and you got to do it right up front. Melissa K. Norris did one of the most helpful videos for me on kind of explaining how to effectively, you know, plant your fruit trees in a zone that was similar to the one that I lived in and, and how to make sure that they would thrive. And this year I planted two cherry, two nectarine, two peach, two plum, two apple. Um, and I, I've got some figs too that didn't make it. So I, I got the insurance from fast growing trees and I'm, I'm getting some more of those, but using her methods, trees that I used to plant that would, I feel like, why are these dead four months later? Almost every single one I had survived. And the only ones that I had problems with were, one, <laughs> I don't know if I'm being honest, I had planted 10 fruit trees. I was tired in the last two. I was just like, okay, here, 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 here we go. All right. All right. Yeah. I, I kind of did what Melissa said too. Yeah. They didn't make it. Oh <laughs> so, my so it was like, just follow what she tells you to do and, and it'll, it'll work well. But Melissa K Norris, another person too, that I've, I've had a chance now to interact with on, um, on social media, on Instagram and whatnot, and just a, a super nice person. Another one of those people that really wants you to succeed. And they do a lot within homesteading. Um, so they do livestock, they do planting, they do growing. She does a lot of herbal stuff too. So if you're interested in the medicinal side, um, Melissa K. Norris does a lot of stuff on okay. some of the stuff on the medicinal side. All right. This guy, Epic Gardening. Um, I came across this channel just because when, when you go on YouTube, 
and you're uh, looking for advice on, okay, hey, why are my tomato plants doing as well? Or, or, you know, how do I do this? Or how do I do that? He has a lot of like short videos where he's showing you how to do stuff. And he, he does a lot of collaboration with other uh, producers. Of great. I think one of the first videos I saw from him was he planted his own wheat because he wanted to make his own sourdough bread. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. You know, I, I love sourdough bread. And, and if, if, when you go to the store and you look at what's in your bread, you, you will be shocked at the number of stuff that is like high fructose corn syrup. Uh, and you're really like, why in the heck is high fructose corn syrup in, in my bread? Here's the stupid question. And I'm asking on behalf of everybody that's too afraid to ask it or unavailable because I'm the only one in the room other than Hamilton. Yeah. What is, this is going to sound really dumb. Um, go for it. But, but look, we all have different skill sets, right? Yeah, yeah, like, no, yeah. I, I probably have, have the same question. Go you're ahead. the one that sat here okay. and prefaced for two why, minutes on why your question why was Why is dumb. high fruct- fructose corn syrup so bad for you? Okay, so... I know that it, they all say that it's bad for you, but like what, what makes it so bad? Well, if, if, you, if you think about, okay, why, do we even ha- why are we even using high fructose corn syrup instead of like regular sugar? Or something like that. Well, part of this has to do with corn subsidies. It has to do with the way that the... It, for a while, they were saying, oh, high fructose corn syrup is better for you because it basically comes from a vegetable. It's not like that evil sugar, right? Well, it, no, it's not. It, it's 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 much harder for you. Your your body doesn't process it as well. Um, it, it and again, it's 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 a form of sugar, right? It this is not naturally good for you. There, there's probably some other people on the, the the chat that can give a far more, you know, scientific response to that. But um, o- overall, you just you just look at this, and again, they they process corn in order to get the high fructose corn syrup in order to put in there as a sweetener. Um, and again, some of this has to do with government subsidies to the corn industry or trying to push it. That's why you've had ethanol subsidies. You've had these other subsidies. And, and they're, they're, you can actually go back and find older commercials where they're trying, to, they're trying to say that candies and sodas using high fructose corn syrup was healthier for you because it was a vegetable instead of like refined sugar. Now, I'm not saying either one of those is, is good for you. Um, in fact, if, if you want sweeteners that are actually better for you using stuff like honey, um, is, is going to be better, but obviously that doesn't work for, for everything. But anyways, um, yeah, Epic gardening. I think he does a, a really good job. The other thing too, that was interesting about him is, um, I think the first place that I saw him doing gardening, he had raised beds like on his front patio and he was growing a ton of food in like a 10 by 12 space. And so again, I go back to if you're looking for you know solutions to some of this stuff and you don't have a lot of property, this is a great place to go and look at some of his ideas. Let's go to the next one. Um, All I gotta say is I love BLT sandwiches in the summer. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, Homesteaders of America. This is a great group. This is actually local to my area of Virginia, but they have a huge conference that they do um, in October. They, you know, thousands upon thousands of people attend this from all over the country, all over the country. Justin Rhodes was there. Uh, Just from Roots and Refuge. The Salton team was there. So many others that I'm forgetting right John now. Lovell. Yeah. John Lovell uh, was there. Like so many, so many people plus ton of great booths to get like food, honey, yep. stuff like, I mean, it was, it was, it was incredible. Um, I'm actually going to be speaking at this next one because I'm going to be talking specifically, not, not as an expert homesteader, but I'm going to be talking as someone that obviously is, is in a state legislature Mm -hmm. is fighting for food freedom and and trying to give them advice on how to effectively fight for it, how to work with the legislators that want to support you. Also things to avoid this. this, I'm I'm just gonna be honest right here. Joel has been great with this. There's been other people and, and organizations that have really worked hard. There's been other people that have showed up to the General Assembly to advocate for food freedom. And by the time they get done, I'm like, well, the supporters of my bill just killed it. 
and nothing is more frustrated than, than putting all the time and effort and working and the behind the scenes stuff only to show up and have your own supporters essentially say things that will destroy your bill. Not because, you know, there, there's anything inherently wrong with it, but just because, oh, you, you peaked the wrong, you, you, you created the wrong enemies on this now. Don't do that. So I'm going to be there to help with that. But oh, I, I, I love it when the supporters actually like advocate against your bills. Yeah. Sometimes I've without even realize, sometimes when they don't even realize they're doing it. Like that's, that's the, the frustrating thing, but we have a ton of other people out there that have just been really great to work with. And again, the, even the people that showed up and did that, they didn't mean to, they just weren't familiar with the process. Well, it's my job to get them familiar with the process and they've got to know that they can actually reach out to me beforehand. So when they're showing up at a subcommittee meeting, I'm not surprised. Like, who are you guys? Oh, we're here to speak on behalf okay. of your bill. I, I, I would not go so far as to blame you. It sounds not, like that you're blaming no, I'm, yourself. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not blaming me. What I'm saying is, is that what I'm grateful for is Homesteaders of America has given me a, a venue to be able to talk to thousands of people that are interested in this and say, hey, look, this is the stuff. These are the strategies that work and these are the strategies that don't. Because a lot of times what happens is people want to show up to a subcommittee meeting and they want to vent because they're pissed and because they have every right to be pissed. And now everyone's going to vote no. So like, just, I, I will give you the room, like come into my office and let's vent. Let's get that all out. And now let's talk about the strategy for what we need to do to get this bill passed. So you can go out there and you can have a successful homestead and you can make money doing this. And, and it's wonderful. But Homesteaders of America, great conference. I want to say, go ahead and check because you might still be able to get tickets for it. They sell out early. So if you're reading this now and you're interested, check now. You wait a couple days, they might not have any tickets left. Um, all right, go to the next one. Okay. No, look, see, I'm on, I'm even on the, I was so, I was so stoked when I, I saw it cause I geek out about homesteader stuff and my, my pictures on there now next to the Salatins and I'm like, Oh my gosh, I'm like, they're with my heroes. But, um, anyway, go, go to the, uh, go to the Frederick, Frederick County. County. Okay. So I got Frederick County homesteaders up here. Now, obviously if you don't live in Frederick County, Virginia, you might be asking Nick, why on a podcast we've got people from you know all over the country? Are you showing me this one? Because these guys, I think, are doing a great job of actually showing intentional community. Yep. Um, we we went to. They invited us to come and speak about legislation that we we're going to be carrying. Uh, they do stuff like you know memberships, their their uh, farm crawl. Um, it, they they had well over I think a hundred people uh, at this event that we were doing in in small rural Virginia. And they have just they have just put in a lot of effort to come up with what I think is a is a very professional, very coordinated, very deliberate. We might even say intentional. Yep. <laughs> uh, approach to this, and 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 again, one of the things with intentional communities that's so critical is this idea of finding people with different skill sets that meet different needs to be able to collaborate and work. Again, you still have division of labor and specialization even within the homesteading community. Right there, there's a certain degree of wanting to do everything at once. I'm horrible. I'm, I'm horrible at that. Some of the best advice they give you is, hey, when you start off doing this, pick a couple things that are going to be your bread and butter. Pick a couple things that you're going to experiment on. There's another homesteading channel where he did a great job explaining this. Um, a guy that like recently like got out of media and entertainment, moved from Chicago, set up, and he was talking about his experiences. And it, it is, it's great, it's great advice. And I, I don't think any of us follow it because <laughs> we want to jump in and do everything. Um, so those are some of the, those are some of the sites, some of the people to check out. Here's where I'm going to go. This is going to be the, the last part here. Um, the last part here where, um, we talk about some of the things that I've done, some of the things I've experienced. And if, and if you're interested in doing this again, I'm not sitting here telling you what to do or the best way to do it. All the people that I mentioned, the rest, but 
I'm, I'm going to give you kind of the, the limited experience I've had and some successes and failures and what's worked for us. Um, so if you're ta- if you are in the considering phase, right, there's considering, there's starting, there's expanding, and then there's like perpetual or sustaining. And I would even say like the fifth level is where now you're not only producing something for your family, but you're producing, you know, you, you have such an abundance of what you're producing that you're now selling to others or you're, you're helping others out, maybe in your church group or whatever else. But if you're in that considering starting phase, uh, here's what I tell you under considering, go check out some of these websites and learn from the people that have been doing this for a while. Because even though you're looking at a lot of people that have become very successful with this, like Mm -hmm. Justin Rhodes has become very successful with this. Um, you look at where roots and refuge was, you know, eight years ago versus where they are today, they become very successful with this. Joel Salatin. But all of these people, all of these people know what it is to start with like nothing. They didn't have a bunch of tractors. They didn't have a bunch of land. They didn't have a bunch of expertise in this. What they had was a dream, a vision, and a whole lot of determination. And I would add on top of that, a willingness to learn and not just learn from listening to other people, to try and to fail and to try and to fail and to try until you actually succeed. Regarding the links, after the show's over, I'll put all the links that we looked at in the description. Yeah. So people can find them. Yeah. So I I would just say that, you know, one one of the things that last year I planted a ton of stuff. I planted more stuff than I'd ever planted before. And I would say 65, 70% of it didn't produce anything close to what I wanted. Hmm. It was so frustrating. And so what did I do? I, I went on, okay, all right, Roots and Refuge, I didn't listen. All right, Joel, I'm going to go and visit your farm. All right, you know, Justin, I'm going to listen to your stuff on this. All right, Epic Gardening, I'm going to check this out. The biggest mistake I made year one, I got all these raised beds. I got all this stuff. You know what I didn't do, though? I didn't properly look at my soil. I didn't properly look. I, I did not properly maintain my soil. I did not properly maintain against. I was trying to do as little, you know, chemicals as possible. I didn't want a bunch of like seven dust on all my plants and things like that to ward off insects. So I started learning. All right. I got my soil worked out now. I got a hoop house for the first time. Again, a hoop house requires a little bit more property, uh, but it's going to be great for things like tomatoes and peppers. So here's what I would say. Look at your zone. Look at the zone you're living in because that's going to have a huge impact on when you can start planting. Start looking and start reading up about composting. Um, now, again, if you if you can't compost yourself, and, and I was not good about that this year, I'm getting better about it because I got all these chickens, I got all these pigs, I've got I've got livestock that is providing me the fertilizer that I need, you know, for my garden. And I'm still composting is uh, you know it's so funny. <laughs> it's you all know. <laughs> That this is just not my cup of tea. But what's so funny is, is that until very recently, I probably had the most experience with all of this stuff of anybody at this table. Yeah, probably. Because my parents have been doing everything we've talked about today yeah. for, oh my gosh, close to 20 years now. Yeah. Since since they moved to Culpeper. They, yeah. They've got 40 chickens. They And they have, by the way, big chicken house. Huge chicken house. Hamilton has seen it. Yep. Gorgeous chickens too. They're Icelandic chickens. They look so pretty. But, um, and they lay so many eggs. We've never had to, we have not had to buy eggs. And I mean, we've talked about like inflation in previous podcasts. We haven't had to buy eggs in years. But what, um, for everybody that's listening or watching, um, who thinks I can't do any of this stuff. My parents have one acre yeah. in a subdivision, um, right off 29 in Culpeper County, one acre. And that's it. Nick, I think has like five or 10 and 
And so, so he's able to do a lot more, but my, my parents have done so much with one acre. They have a massive, massive vegetable garden that they grow all sorts of stuff. They even, they're starting to even grow fruit. Um, but, but like all, every type of vegetable that you can possibly think of. My stepfather, Dale manages that garden. My mother's the one that is like obsessed with the chickens. They go to like the farmer's markets and they go and buy the chickens. They'll sell eggs that every now and then they'll, they'll, they'll trade chickens themselves. Yeah. Um, they have a huge chicken coop. Again, 40 chickens. Um, they have been doing this type of stuff. They're really into in, in, into chickens, but they're also really into vegetables. Those are the two things that, yeah. that, that they specialize in. And they've been doing this stuff now. The chickens they've been doing for probably like 10 years. The vegetables they've been doing for like 20. Well, and you, can, you can do... I, I, I always... If someone were going to ask close me... close to 20. If someone were going to ask me, Nick, starting from scratch. So let, let me give everyone an idea of... of, of what I've done and I'm currently doing pigs, goats, um, meat, chickens, lane hens, peacocks. I'll get to that in a second. <laughs> peacocks. Um, and, and as far as like vegetables, uh, corn, beets, um, onion, garlic, tomatoes, uh, bell peppers, habanero peppers, jalapeno peppers, carrots, cucumbers, uh, watermelons, cantaloupe, pumpkin. Um, there, there's some other stuff in there that I'm, uh, basil. We do a ton of basil cause we love pesto. Um, but it, so th that's kind of the staples of some of the stuff that, that we do. And then we also do some flowers and stuff like that, um, for fun. So th that's kind of the, the spectrum of, of what we have. And, and we've selected things based off of where our, our tastes are. There's a lot of people, I haven't done a lot of winter crops. Uh, next year I want to, uh, well, not that these are all winter crops, but like I haven't done a lot of things like broccoli, cauliflower, uh, Brussels sprouts, you know, different types of lettuce and whatnot. That's the, that's the next area that I'm going to jump into, especially with things like Brussels sprouts and asparagus, although that's kind of a two-year thing for asparagus. Um, th so that, that's kind of where I'm at. If someone said, Nick, you got to start over, what, do you, what would you do? I, I would say first, um, raised beds are your friend. Uh, raised beds are your friend. So is what they call no-till gardening. Uh, no-till gardening is when you go out, you can go out to a space and what you do is you, you, you cut it, you get all the weeds out, you cut it as close as, as possible. And then literally you just throw like cardboard on top of it. And then you get good, like organic composts, you know, some topsoil and whatnot, mix it all in there. And then you grow directly on that. And, and what ends up happening is obviously the cardboard and whatnot suppresses the weeds underneath. And you, you know, you can just replenish that year after year. Um, there's some really good sites on on specifically no-till gardening, um, but raised beds again, I think are are your friend. Ra raised beds are a must oh my gosh, for this type of yeah. stuff. All of the all the vegetables that I just told you that my parents grow, they they, they the garden they they have they have one two three four. They have I think eight raised yeah. beds, and each one's growing a separate a, a separate crop. Um, and then they also and, and by the way, raised beds, um, most raised beds will have um like like boards that are that are like defining the the edges of yeah. it um there's another and i i'm not an expert in this stuff but i've i've lived through it for so long trust me growing up my parents would be the ones out there and they'd be like you want to come come garden with us and Christian, me I as the kid would be like no but <laughs> Christian, you know i have a serious question for you <laughs> what so here at the studio there are two raised beds in the yard <laughs> with all this expertise no and experience i already know where you're have, going with this no, we we could start <laughs> now to grow some stuff here. You can start. What do you think about that? You can totally. I, 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 um, I will support you in your endeavor <laughs> from a distance. Um, look, we, we've, we, we, we all have look, we've already we've already established we've already established that when the economy collapses, Christian's contribution to the intentional community is not going to be gardening. 
He's 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 going to be providing. I'm the conservative support. equivalent to to throw some self-deprecating well, humor. Well, I'm the conservative equivalent of the communist who thinks when the revolutionary <laughs> happens, they will get to be the village poet. Yeah. <laughs> In reality, it's going to be like, sorry, but um, all the poet positions have already been taken. But, you know, manual labor, we always need that. (laughs) Well, let me me go through some of these other things that I would recommend people start off with. Okay. Um, Tomatoes are tomatoes are great. Um, And so I'm sorry, I said raised beds, no-till gardening. These are all, uh, I I think, great ways to to start using kind of like that. Composting is great. Look at some videos on composting. Not as hard as you think. Um, Getting uh, chickens. Uh, you you don't you don't need a lot. You you got to figure if you get some of your your higher yield um, laying chickens and whatnot, they're going to give you almost an egg a day. Um, some some less, um, but an egg a day. They'll, they'll they tend to not lay as much um, in the wintertime because they don't have as much light. If you actually put a light in your coop, you, they'll continue to lay. However. Just remember, your, your chicken has is born with all of the eggs it's ever going to lay as far as like the, the process for that. Like there's a set number, essentially. And so if they lay through the winter, you're going to get fewer, you know, overall, like fewer years of laying, but you'll, you'll get a higher concentration over a shorter period of time. Um, but I would say get, get some laying hens. Um, that's a great place to start because you're really going to appreciate um, just – especially chickens that if they have a little bit of area to, to free range, you're, you're really going to start to notice the difference between the eggs that you have at home versus the eggs that you get at the store. Um, plus what, what is the difference? Oh, oh they, Hamilton, they, you know, the difference because you've, you've had eaten a, my parents' eggs, the, the yolks, the yolks are, the yolks are far more rich. Um, you know, they're the, the shells I, I think are usually, you know, harder and more formidable. Um, plus there's all kinds of things that you can use. I've actually, pe- I've actually seen people use the egg shells as they'll put the soil in the egg and use those for seed starts. <laughs> I've never done that, but you can also, you can also crush that up and use that as, as, um, other things as well. I, if, uh, by the way, that, that, that was kind of a, a, a bit mean there because it's a valuable question for somebody that might not have yet seen it. So not <laughs> look, I'm, try, I'm trying to be a better Christian. person here. I'm trying to be a better person. <laughs> I guess the town poet. It's part, also, of the, okay. it's part of the Abby, 90 day challenge. Hang on. The, the the reason that I I'm going somewhere with this. Yeah. Um, Hamilton, to to your point about like like the difference between eggs, if you haven't yet seen it, because I, I'm willing to bet that there's a good number of our audience members that might have not seen like organic, you know, locally grown eggs versus store bought eggs. Like you will be able to tell the difference in part because a they're usually much dirtier. One one bit of advice: if you ever do start doing any of the stuff we've talked about in today's episode. Do not wash the eggs. That that is a oh, tremendous yeah. really? piece of advice. You, I, I know they're going to be dirty. There's chicken them. poop all wash, over it. Wash but, them before you eat them. But, honestly, but. well, of course. But yeah. but when you're collecting the eggs, yes, they're going to be filthy and everything. But if you wash it, you have to refrigerate it. Yeah. Mm. Otherwise, it will go bad. If you don't wash it, you can leave the eggs laying out yeah. on the countertop for weeks. Yeah. You you can leave them out for like two You'll weeks on the countertop. Says the be town to- poet. Be, yeah. be totally fine. No, no, I mean I actually do know what I'm talking about in this one. Well, thing. Hey, listen, Abby, Abby asked Abby asked a question on how do you uh, protect your chickens from predators. That's a great question. You are going to need to have a fully enclosed coop for them. Now here here's what I found during the day. And again, I live in I live in a, an area where I have woods. I have a creek, which means that draws in a lot of animals to include predators. We've had foxes. We've had coyotes. We've had all of that. Um, during the day, we usually don't have a, a big problem with it. We keep our coop a little bit closer to the house. I used to keep the coop closer to the woods. I would not do that again. 
Okay. Because one of the things that we'll go after is like raccoons. They, they'll go after it as well. It's not just what you'd expect. Do they go after the eggs or the chickens? Yes. Both? <laughs> yes. Um, so, because, so I like to keep the coop a little bit closer to the house than I would put other livestock. Like I got my pigs run around the woods, right? That's mm-hmm. a great place for them. Like there's, there's nothing around our area that's carrying off, you know, a pig once it's gotten to any sort of like decent size. But, um, but yeah, I, I would definitely keep the chickens a little bit closer. You want a completely enclosed place for them to go. So we usually let our chickens out um, around 9, 930, and we put them in as soon as it gets dark. Now, the great thing about chickens is they naturally go yeah. back. They naturally go back to their home. Um, so when you, you put them in there, they have their place where they roost, and, and you keep kind of their food and water close by to that. They naturally go in there once it starts once it gets kind of dusk out. Um, here's what I would warn you about. There, there are some things that are pretty cool. Like they have... Uh, little doors that will automatically open up. They're, they're solar powered and they will automatically open up when the sun comes up and they'll automatically close when the sun goes down. And we had one of these and we loved it. It, because we didn't have to wake up in the morning. The chickens were already out and then it would close at night. And then when it closed at night, if you were worried about chickens getting caught outside, it had a timer. So it would close and it would open back up for five minutes and then it would close again. And that pretty much let all your, your stragglers get in on time. Here's what we found. We had a fox that was coming around and it knew what time the chickens came out in the morning. And so it would sit there and wait. And we started to lose chickens because of that. And then we stopped doing that and we waited until it was a little bit later in the day and maybe our dogs would come out more and that would scare the predators away. And we do. And so that coop worked out fine. If you have meat chickens and you're actually moving them around in a chicken tractor, I was worried about this. This is a question I asked Joel Salton. I'm like, you're honestly telling me this little two by four, you know, thing with chicken wire around it. That's keeping things out. And he goes, we hardly ever lose anything to predators. So I tried it this first year. We haven't lost a single thing to predators. Um, so it is it is light enough to where, you know, we, we can move it fairly easily. Like my wife could move uh, the thing. It's not, it's not super heavy, but it is heavy enough to where predators can't get up underneath that thing. And when we released a full episode uh, with Joel, there's a lot of footage of the chicken tractors as well. Uh, but Nick, you you were moving the chicken tra- chicken tractor every day to a new patch of grass, right? Yes. So what I what I would tell people is so a, a couple of the raised beds or no till no till gardening. Um, tomatoes are a great staple. Zucchinis are <laughs> what Christians like zucchinis. One of the reasons why I tell people to try zucchinis is because there is a lot of use for them. I like zucchini, especially like in the morning. Yeah, they're great home. filler for garbage cans. <sighs> Whatever. <laughs> Shut up. They're terrible. Anyway, you know what they're also good for though? If you need, obviously you have pigs and stuff like that. Zucchinis have such a high yield that even if you're producing far, you have like three zucchini plants, you will probably produce more zucchini at the, at the height of their production than a family of five can go through. You know what that means? Feed for your pigs. It means feed for other other livestock. They, they can eat zucchini and pr- practically anything. Everything can. So like my goats, you know, they love it when everything's in full tilt because I'm always giving them extra stuff. Um, but zucchinis are a good one. Tomatoes are a good one. Not just for we use tomatoes and tomatoes paste for so many things when we cook that it, that's a great one. Uh, another thing that you can use are these fabric bags. You can you can go buy them on. Um, you know, again, if you want the fabric, they're a little bit better for drainage. But honestly, you can use feed bags for some of this stuff. It just doesn't drain as well. But we're growing uh, potatoes in those. We're growing, and our potatoes are going gangbusters this year. And these little fabric bags, you just fill them up with soil, plant your potatoes. Um, that, that's a great one. Potatoes are obviously a, a, a nutrient dense food. Plus, they they store pretty well as long as you do it correctly. These are some all. These are all good things to start with. Um, when, when you're just beginning, because it doesn't require a lot of space, you're going to get really high yield. It's pretty easy to maintain and take care of. 
Um, you, you're going to love it. Um, the other thing is, so with the meat chickens, so obviously when you're talking about, you're getting protein from your hens, obviously, because they're laying eggs. Plus eggs are really, if you want to, another way to preserve eggs over time, um, noodles, uh, we'll make homemade noodles with our eggs. And so when we're, when we just have so many eggs and we don't know what to do with it and we we're done giving them away, we'll make homemade noodles and they're fabulous. Um, but another way to like, if you want to expand into protein, meat chickens are a really easy way to do it. Uh, because you don't need a lot of space for meat chickens. And if you get a meat chicken from the time they hatch to the time you process them is about, you know, eight to 10 weeks. Um, nine weeks is probably kind of that sweet spot for, for a lot of the ones that are bred specifically for meat. Um, go get 25, you know, like little hatchlings. There, there's a ton of them. They actually deliver them to them at the post office. You go and pick them up at the post office. It's kind of cute. You pick them up. They're all tweeting and like that. People in the post office are like, what the heck is that? You take them back. You have like a couple of weeks where you have them like in a, in a little, you know, container or, or like a, we have a, a bigger brooder uh, that we've made where it's very well ventilated. And so now when like our chicks are like, two and three weeks old, they can all be in there and not be cramped. There's plenty of ventilation that this reduces the amount of like medication you potentially have to give mm -hmm. them. Then we move them into the chicken tractor. So you got to figure they're only in that chicken tractor for maybe five weeks. And so, um, when they're really little, you can keep them on the same patch of grass for a few days. It's not going to, it's not a big deal. Uh, once they start to get bigger, you want to kind of move them every day. Um, but I will tell you what, people will come over and I'll say, do you see the really, really green grass right over there? Yeah, that's where they started, you know, yeah. three weeks ago. And so when you're moving that, it, it keeps the smell down. It's healthier for the chickens. It actually helps your, your lawn and, and your soil. Um, so meat chickens are a great place to start if you're if you're looking at raising your own meat. Some people love goats. I, I We love our goats. Our goats have all become pets. I'm not even going to lie. We, we got Nigerian dwarfs, which are good for uh, milking. And the whole idea was, oh, we're going to milk these and we're going to make soap. We're going to start off with soap because it's fairly easy. Yeah. You don't have to worry about foodborne illnesses and stuff like that. Yeah, they, they quickly just became pets. I got two questions. Yeah. One about the eggs is someone who just recently started back at the gym again. Yeah. If you turn them to noodles, do they retain the protein? Okay, so you're, you're not going to get as much You're not going to as much health value in, in eggs through noodles as you are through just eating. Like I, I love hard boiled eggs. Yeah. So like a, a regular part of my routine because eggs also have good cholesterol. We have this idea that all cholesterol is bad. It's not. Um, eggs have really good protein, very good cholesterol. Now it's like anything else. You can, you overdo it? Sure. And if you're talking about like duck eggs, that's, that's a, it's, they're wonderful, but that's a lot more rich. Um, but I, I'll do like three or four like eggs, um, not a day, but pretty close. Yeah. Um, and, and it's a great, it's a great source, great source of protein. protein. Yeah. yeah. Um, second question, someone asked this and it's, it's a good question because I at one point had it as well. They asked, what is a meat chicken? And I think we should dis differentiate that there are egg chickens and meat chickens. Yeah. So obviously any chicken can be used for meat, but if you, if you have chickens that are like laying hens, then you're going to use those for producing eggs, not for meat. Now, Hens will get to an age where they, they no longer lay eggs. And at that point they become kind of what you call like stew chickens because it's not, it's not the, it's not the, you know, best quality meat at that okay. point. Um, but there, it's fine for stews and things like that, where you're, you're cooking it down, heavily seasoning it, things, things of that nature. Meat chicken, probably the most popular chicken breed for meat. And this is what you think of when you go to the store and you're buying chicken breasts or thighs or whatnot is Cornish crosses. And, and maybe somebody in the, in the audience can disagree with that and they have a different one, but Cornish crosses are ex are, are just highly productive in the sense that again, from the moment you hatch them to the moment you process them, that's only nine weeks. 
And if you've got them in a chicken tractor, you're actually supplementing the feed that you would have for them um, with them going out and getting bugs and scratching things up and everything else. So it, it's it's actually in some ways when you've got that chicken tractor made, it's it's cheaper than if you just kept them in one place and you got to constantly sure. provide all their feed. But um, they, they go through feed. They grow really, really quick. It's, it's kind of funny when they're little, they kind of outgrow their feathers. So they got all these like splotches on them. Yeah, they're not the most attractive looking chicken. But uh, that's what I mean by meat chickens. I mean chickens that are specifically bred uh, for the, the, the meat yield that you, you get out of them versus, you know, other breeds, which are better as like layers, stuff like that. Yeah. All right. So I think I've gone through some of the ones that some of the things you need. Here's the other thing that I would say is once you start doing this and, um, you, you get into where you're, you're having kind of more of like your abundant crops and stuff like that, you are going to want to learn how to do some, some form of preserving. So I already talked about how, Hey, you know, you can turn eggs into noodles, right? Obviously it's not the only component, but it's, it's a key one. Um, you're, you're canning tomatoes and can, canning tomato paste. That's really good. Um, interesting enough, Justin Rhodes, like the Rhodes family that they do this. I mean, this is their thing. They don't can, uh, or they, they don't do very much of it. They freeze most of their stuff. They actually think it provides better taste. Now, if you live on the grid, you can do that. If you live off the grid, you can, unless you've yeah. got pretty good solar capacity. Um, I, I think it's good to do both, right? Like I, I, I certainly like the idea that we have the capacity because it's easy to throw something in the freezer, um, re- retains its composition, you know, and everything else. There are other things that, uh, you know, we'll, we'll pickle stuff. So obviously we pickle our cucumbers, we'll pickle our, our banana peppers. Um, there's a couple of different ways to do that. Uh, there's, there's also like these like fermentation bowls that you can do, which are pretty easy to use, but man, if you don't get it right, they can go bad. Um, but learning how to preserve foods, getting a dehydrator, dehydrators are pretty, are, are fairly cheap. Um, I love dehydrated fruit. I, that's like one of my favorite. I'll, I'll eat dehydrated fruit like candy, um, especially dehydrated yeah, apples. Yeah. Dehydrated apples are, are great, but you know um, everything else as well. I'm looking forward to when our fruit trees are in full production. There's going to be a lot of stuff that we can pull off that the fruit trees. Wait, when and, and you dehydrate an apple, how long does it last? Like forever? That's a good question. I don't know off the top of my head. Okay. I I know I, I, it wouldn't last forever. Um, now, if you want to, if you really want to go for something that's like long lasting, freeze dry. Hmm. So they, they now have like these, these home units. I think there's one called like healthy harvest or good harvest. I can't remember what it's called, but it's expensive. It's like a $2,000 purchase, but you can freeze dry meat and that'll last 25 years. Wow. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, that's, that's hardcore, like long-term food preservation. Freeze drying is, is, is one of the best. We don't do that though. So I don't pretend to have any expertise in it. Um, but there's a lot of people that kind of swear by it, but yeah, de- dehydrating is a really easy way. And obviously, you know, with jerky smoking things, um, smoking meat and stuff like that is, is a great way for food preservation. I'm, I don't smoke stuff really. I've got a smoker. I don't use it very much. Um, we're also, Does it taste different when you smoke meat? Yeah. Oh, smoke meat Does is- Does it taste is, good? Yes. Then why oh. don't you do it more? It, is it like very time intensive? It's more, it's more, it's more time consuming. You got it. Now, the people that are really good at it and really enjoy doing it, they, they use, I mean, they're probably a lot more efficient than I was. Um, but uh, otherwise, you, you do got to keep up on it. You got to kind of watch it. Um, but- like I said, there's probably somebody in the audience that does this that is a lot better at it than I am. Uh, but but smoked meat is, yeah, oh, yeah, phenomenal. And, and again, you're, you're, there's, there's smoking meat for, like, preservation, and a lot of people will, like, smoke meat for, like, immediate consumption because it adds a, a good flavor to it. Um, but, yeah, there, there's ways that you can smoke the meat will we'll preserve it over time. The other interesting thing, too, is with, with a lot of, like, if you go buy meat at the store, take it home and put it on the counter, like, that's, you know, overnight, it's spoiled the next day. 
when you're getting fresh meat, I mean, you, you leave that up there to hang like out there exposed to the elements. You can do that for days. Somebody in the comments said smoked meat is amazing, but time consuming. Yeah. I need to try it. I don't think I've ever actually tried eating. It's what type of meat do really you typically good. smoke? I mean, people will smoke pork. They'll smoke beef. They'll smoke venison. They'll, I mean, venison is yeah. uh, so another thing too that that turkey legs smoked turkey of course smoked turkey legs is more for the the flavor but yeah it's my really my stepfather dale is a avid hunter that's like one of his favorite things to do other than gardening and um man venison if you haven't tried it um it is it's worth trying i did not think i, I grew liked, up eating it i did not think i liked venison because the, the it's way too gamey. Well, the way it had been prepared for me when I was growing up wasn't very good. It can be quite gamey. I, I had a I had a family member that God love them. They were the best baker on the planet. But when it came to preparing venison, nope. If it's done right, I, I like I said a second ago, it can be very gamey. But if it's cooked properly, it can taste great. Like I like I venison like, in a stew tastes so. I, good. So I don't like venison as much with steaks. I like it more with stews with like taco meat and stuff like that. The other thing too that is fen a phenomenal meat and pretty easy to raise is ducks now the thing you need to understand ducks are filthy ducks are <laughs> filthy they just are the other thing too about like your different fertilizers um poultry fertilizer poultry drop is something that you can't just take that and then throw it on your garden they that usually needs some time to cool down it's what they call really hot whereas stuff like sheep cattle horse manure that stuff you can almost instantly put in your garden and, and you're you're good to go it, it's it's a lot it's a lot more plant friendly um some other things you, you want to own in order to do this. Again, you don't need a tractor. We do have a tractor now, and I, I, I absolutely flipping love that thing. Um, it, is, it is great. Um, but, you, you know, shovel, pitchfork, wheelbarrow, you know, these are all power tools. You, you, want, you want the battery operated, too. I love DeWalt. I'm at a point right now where I used to buy whatever the cheapest thing I could get at Harbor Freight. Um, and, and that's okay to start, but I'm at a point right now where I'm, a, I'm such a DeWalt guy. It's not even funny. Um, I love my DeWalt power tools. Um, the other things too, if, if you want to get, this in, is not sponsored by no, DeWalt I, power yeah, tools. But, but Hey, DeWalt, <laughs> if you're interested, I'll be happy. Like I already love your stuff. So, but, uh, I love the DeWalt stuff. Um, we got a tractor with, we, we've got a front loader. We've got a, um, uh, what do you call it? Um, forklift. Uh, and we've got some other stuff that we're getting right now with like an auger. You have a forklift? Do you have an OSHA certification for that? <laughs> no, I sure don't. <laughs> and I, I, I wear that lack of certification without pride. Another thing that we would like to get, which you can actually get an attachment for some of your tractors, although most, uh, if it's not a standalone, is a chipper. And the reason why the chipper is good is because Joel Salton explains this. He uses it a lot for his, his composting. Um and, and a, a chipper is really good on that because you need a certain balance of like brown and green materials for, for, you know, good, good composting. Um, look, we, we, I actually thought this would be like an hour, hour and 20 minute podcast. Know, being a two, hour two hours, two hours. So I can I'm, tell that you've, you've been like really invested in this topic. And let me say, as this somebody, is so much fun. I can't even as tell somebody people. that has known, I've known Nick close to a dozen years now. And, I don't remember at any point in time until very recently, I'd say last like two to three years, that Nick has really started to like be into this topic. Yeah, yeah. And I think part of the reason is, is because for the longest time, like Nick and I, we, we were, we were super into politics. We still are obviously, yeah. I mean, he's in the state legislature, but like, <laughs> I think that, that what's happened is, is that really since COVID, I think a lot of people, Nick and I included, but especially Nick. And many of the people that watch our show have have started to come to the conclusion that 
to quote Nick, nobody's coming to save you. Yeah. Right? There is certainly nobody in DC is coming to save you. If you are watching this no, podcast. Just the opposite. Yeah. If you are <laughs> DC watching. DC might be coming, but it's not to save you. <laughs> if you are an avid listener to this podcast, or if you watch us on YouTube regularly and you still believe somebody in DC is coming to save you, <laughs> we have failed yeah. you. Um, <laughs> because true. We, we've tried to make it our mission to explain why, brother. It's probably only going to be getting worse before it gets better at the federal level. Yeah. And what we need to be doing as conservatives, it's not just give up the fight and become complete, you know, don't turn into me, right? <laughs> but like instead seek out other solutions to push for our values. And I th I really do think that, that, that the way that we're going to get through the next 10, 20, 30 years or even the next five years is – by focusing more at the local and state level, it's it's yep. it's through these these intentional community stuff that we've talked about. It's through the homesteading stuff that Nick is is starting to get into. It's through your state government because I I really think that when we get to the point, like we've talked in in our past episodes about like the direction the dollar is going, the direction mm -hmm. the federal government is going, if if the the inevitable debt crisis, hyperinflationary crisis hits at some point, like we know it will, we just don't know the timing. But when we get to that point states will hopefully be the ones leading the way and and states will be directed by hopefully conservatives because i i don't think california is going to be rescuing us either no, no. when when it hits the fan at the federal level i think it's going to be conservative leaning states like florida or tennessee or texas well can I, I i agree with that and we're we're going to do an episode at some point really talking about the whole federalist concept and okay what what happens with the states because a lot of countries at the national government um, runs into serious problems. The whole country's that, doomed. That's it. The whole country's doomed because they're all everyone's sitting there waiting to take orders from the national government. The, the we have a federated constitutional republic. And we operate a little bit differently, and it provides some resiliency to that. Um, but one of the, re the reasons why I got so much into this and homeschooling is that these aren't just. If you think of this purely as things I'm doing to be prepared, it sounds like work. If if you're doing this as this is interesting and I enjoy it and my food tastes better. And it is, I, I, I can't, I can't emphasize this enough. There's, there's actually more programs too, where they're actually helping returning vets, combat vets and whatnot. And one of the ways that they're dealing with is, is actually getting them into agriculture. Um, because there's, there's been, it's, there's benefits to that too. There's also benefits into fostering life, right? And that's kind of what you're doing. And now there's, there's a, there's a death component too, especially when you're talking about raising livestock, but, but fostering life and, and, and helping to give animals that are, are essentially bred for meat, you know, the best life possible. And I, and I, I think there's something to be said for animals that live a good life, produce better meat. <laughs> um, and, and maybe that's just, you know, I, I don't know, maybe you just feel better eating it, but I, I think there's something about that. Well, it's but, not just that too, because a lot of, a lot of these livestock or you're not just slaughtering them for the meat. A lot of them, like, again, my parents have chickens that they, they don't necessarily eat them for the meat. They, oh no, they yeah, eat them for the, they, they eat the eggs. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and so here's what I'll, here's what I'll say. Here's what I'll say to kind of, to kind of wrap all this up. And I, I, I really want to love all the conversation has been some of my been favorite. Awesome. Before you wrap favorite. it up there, there's a couple questions. Um, one person, I, I believe it might be from Alabama based on the question that they just asked. This is homesteading crazy said question. Do you know where the homesteading laws in Alabama are or where they could find them? Probably the Use best. Use that as a template for any state for that matter. Yeah. Like, so the, the best place, the best place to find the laws governing homestead is actually to probably find a homesteading organization within your state and, and search there. 
Now, in Virginia, we also have something called Legislative Information Services. And if you go on to LIS, you can actually search Virginia code and you can find some of that. The problem is that if you look at the way most laws are written, it's probably not going to say homesteading laws and then go, it's, it's, it's going to talk about food safety. It's going to talk about property rights. It's going to talk about things you can do with agriculture. So find an expert in your find, state. Find an expert in your state. Or an expert organization. Yes, an expert organization in your state that follows. Like in Virginia, we have... Uh, um, one of the organizations, let me, let me type it up here real quick. So there, there's a lot of organization and this applies to anything, not just homesteading laws mm-hmm. it, 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 again. Cause if you're watching our podcast or listening to us, you're probably into some other topics that, you know, get dealt at the state level as well. Things like gun rights, maybe for example. So, so like, it's like, it's a Virginia independent consumers and farmers association, VICFA in Virginia. That's mm-hmm. one of the groups they're, you can go to where, where they, they track legislation and they, they look at, so and, and the reason why that's important is because there'll be things in code that seem innocuous or don't seem related to homesteading, but actually are. And so when you have an organization that is not just involved in homesteading, but actually involved in the legislative process and understanding the laws, they're the ones that can usually give you the best insight within your state on what you can do, what you can't do, what they're working on, how you can help them pass legislation that you would like to see. Um, th- those are those are some of the best organizations. My, my recommendation, and, and, and Nick agrees too, you know, to add to what Nick said, like through both of our experiences, Nick is currently a state legislature uh, le- legislator. I've worked in the state legislature before, and I've been extremely active in Virginia state politics for uh, over a decade now. I-, I I can tell you that there's, it is hard to to just say I'm going to just read through the code, and oh, that's yeah. going to tell me everything that that I need to know. Even if you. God forbid, even if you actually find that entertaining, <laughs> it's going to be really difficult because it's probably, it's very unlikely that there's going to be just a segment in the code that's about homesteading or about livestock on your property or growing food on your property. Um, that's not the way that codes are worked up. So get in touch with a with an organization or group. It could be a conservative-minded group or one that's specifically to that one issue. And they will, they've already done the research before. Don't do yeah. extra work when somebody else has already done it. Yeah. There's one last question that I, I, I think it's worth asking for you from the audience. Um, somebody asked, what type of tractor do you have? I have a Yanmar. Um, I have a Yanmar. It's a 60 horsepower. Uh, I love that thing. It, it's, look, chapter or tractors aren't cheap. But if you really think that you're going to, if, if you do think you're going to do this at some sort of scale, um, it, it it's it's worth it because it's going to save you a lot yeah. of uh, it's going to save your back like I'm <laughs> yeah I, I so I, I I love I love our tractor it's awesome it allows us to do so much more than we could do before uh, but it is not necessary when you're starting off at a micro level and can I just say something too I have wonderful neighbors. Um, we, we, we went 10 years on our property without a tractor. That doesn't mean I never used a tractor. It means that our very, very gracious neighbors would, would allow us to use their, their tractor pretty much whenever we asked. Um, and, and they were just so kind with us on, on all of that. It's one of the things I love the most about the homesteading community is I've never run into so many people that desperately want you to succeed. Um, and, and are, are open with their successes. Uh, and you can, you can tell, you can tell so much too, by the way that they talk about what they do. It's not about you should do this, or this is the only way to do it, or you have to do this. It's more of, this is what I did. This is why I did it. This is where it was successful. This is where it wasn't. It's just this incredibly humble, um, yeah. community with the way they talk about things. I, and I, I, I just, I think the reason that is, is because they all know what it feels like to struggle through the process. Yeah. Yeah. They really do. So I, I now again, you you can always find somebody that's 
just a punk, right? Yeah. But he, and he look hard enough, you'll find him in every single community. But this is one where I have just been so encouraged um, by by the people that will will joke with me on this, and and I certainly don't judge when I screw things up. Like I said, I I tagged uh, Jess from Roots and Refuge. I was like, well, this is what happened to your seed starts when you don't listen to Jess, right? And, and most of mine were dead or not performing well. Um, and again, her, her her thing wasn't to come back and be like, oh, you dummy, you should have done this. It was to yeah. say, Nick, that's hysterical. Everyone's been there. Here's some, you know, and and that's you know again. There's so much negativity, especially within politics right now. One of the biggest important components about intentional communities, and I think homesteading provides some of this, is that you you are you're entering into a, a space where you can learn, you can grow, and you can take constructive criticism because you're surrounded by people that want the best for you, mm. and um, and that's really important. That is just really important because otherwise, this just becomes one colossal just slog. Uh, through the swamp, and and that's not what this is supposed to be. So when I when I talk about doing these things, um, you know, do them because they're fun and you enjoy them. And if there's certain things that you just absolutely hate, uh, great, don't do those things, right? Don't do those things in homesteading. Find the things that you really really like and get super good at it, and then find other people within the community that are good at the other thing, and then trade. Right. This is how these things work. This this is an economy. This is a marketplace as well. It's a community, but it's also a market. And, and, and there's people that I can tell you as I develop certain things and I realize that, okay, I was really good at this and I really stunk at that. I'm going to start focusing on the things I'm really good at and I'm going to trade with the people that are really good at the things I'm not good at. And, and you know, what that does is it, it helps breed an appreciation for various skill sets and, and capabilities. Um, but in, in, in the meantime, um, again, look, look for ways that you can actually in, in improve yourself, improve your family, improve your community that you don't got to ask permission for, um, that you enjoy, um, that you get a sense of community out of, because like I, I I'll probably end every episode with this. If, if you want to get people to let go of the lie, you got to point them toward the truth. And if you want to point them to the truth, you can make a really good argument for it. But the best argument you'll ever make is the way you live your life. All right. I've got a few things I need to wrap up with. All right. I'm going to hand it over to Hamilton. Um, if you are someone like Christian who appreciates all of the work people are putting into this industry, you might go to a farmer's market as well to support those folks. Uh, secondly, we will be publishing the full-length interview with Joel Salatin probably in within two to three weeks. Um, where you can find that, it's very simple. I'm going to show you right here. If you go to Nick's YouTube channel, uh, down here we've linked all of the channels that we uh, work on, making the Argument Podcast channels right here, the Y Minutes, which we publish every Wednesday uh, at 2 p.m., and Risk Takers. This will be the channel that that interview lives on. Uh, we started this program early last year, Unfortunately, I haven't had enough as much time as we would have liked to to continue the interviews. But Joel is one that we did record last year and really enjoyed. Uh, but we have some interviews here with the guys that created uh, the underwater treadmill, which that was a fascinating story. Yeah, for like, this is like just revolutionized way athletes, you know, train yeah. and recover. Um, BJ Wurzen, who started a humongous home remodeling company in Pennsylvania, who's a very liberty-minded entrepreneur. Um, and then we had an interview for a pilot version of the show uh, here in Culpeper with, um, remind me of Br Brittany. Yeah. Brittany was the youngest, uh, youngest property owner on Davis street, which is kind of like our classic street. She was also uh, my, both of my daughter's first boss. Wow. Um, but she's a young entrepreneur has been an entrepreneur ever since her, her you know, early twenties. Like, gosh, she's only like 30 now, but uh, has run successful business. I, I'm going to be honest. That was, that was probably one of my favorite interviews because I, I just, I, I, I know Brittany and I, I, 
I knew her before she owned uh, this particular shop and a, a different a restaurant that she had owned. And uh, just kind of, it, it's really neat to see young people that are just, went to college for one thing, understood that they really liked entrepreneurship and then just became really good at it and, and create opportunities for other people in that process. Yeah. Entrepreneurs get such a bad name right now. Ooh, greedy, evil business people. Like, you know what? Yeah. There's some out there that are that way, but I, I've met far more that we're not only excited about what they did and the profitability of it and the success of it, but, but how they actually build up other people and create opportunities for other people mm -hmm. to do similar things. Uh, we'll, we'll also have uh, Joel, a lot more Joel Salatin stuff yeah. on our other page as well, but we will do that full interview over there on uh, risk takers. Yep. We, the, our purpose in starting this show was to interview risk takers and Joel, as we've learned today, and Joel's father is definitely exactly that. So that video will publish on this channel. If you want to get notified when that video does publish, make sure you subscribe and turn on all notifications for that. The second way to make sure you watch the video when it does publish is by joining our circle community, which we have a link in the description that you can go to. We've had great conversations there. Everyone is asking Christian to go to the gym. We <laughs> have not given up on the effort yet, but if you would like to help us in that encouragement. All right. In Christian's defense, between between the work we the work he does here, that also there's another there's actually a really cool history project that we're working on that Christian's yeah. going to be leading along with uh, Cody, our, our video editor, who's just fantastic. Um, but he's also finishing his dissertation. Yep. This is something he's he's dreamt of doing for a long time. He's so close. September, so close. It'll it'll be finished in September. Yeah. So in, in September. So. We, we've granted Christian something of a reprieve on some of his other requirements to be able to finish this dissertation. But when the dissertation is done, so are the excuses, Heinz. That's fine. That's fine. I'm, I'm totally okay with that. It's no, just, it's, it's really stressful to write 15,000 words. In fact, I've, I need to put aside some time today. Today, tomorrow, Saturday, and Sunday, I've got to write like 250 words each if I want to like keep on track in order to finish on time. So it's... So he is, he, is, he is working, he is working hard. He hasn't sloughed it all off where I know we give him a bad time, but he really, it, it's, this is going to be neat. I've known Christian since he was in high school. So like, I know that this has been one of the things he's always wanted to accomplish. Wandering Warrior asks, is he lifting history books? <laughs> <laughs> Actually in the corner of this room, there is a, a pile, a growing pile yeah. of books um, that you I've know been what? using. You know, Wandering this, Warrior so. was, he, he, he was an SF guy. Oh really? He, he keeps making Pineland references, which was the the, the <laughs> fake country we all fought in yeah. during our, our final unconventional warfare exercise. And I still have a shirt that says "Free Pineland." <laughs> <laughs> all right, listen, we have we have gone even longer than we thought we were going to go, but you've stuck with us. You've asked a lot of great questions. I want to thank everybody. We've even had more requests to expand upon this subject in the future. I actually think we might look at doing that and maybe inviting on some of the people that we've talked yeah. about before, uh, who can really give expert advice. I am still very much a novice at this, uh, but it's been great. Thank you guys so much for sticking with us. Also, please, in Circle, this, this episode was at the direct request of our audience in our Circle chat, um, so go on there, join that group, and, and let us know what you would like to see more of in the future. Once again, thank you very much for joining us, and we will see you next episode. Once again, thank you very much for listening. If you want to support the show, again, one of the best ways you can do it is by heading over to goodranchers.com with promo code Nick. You're going to get $15 off. You sign up for one of those subscriptions and you're going to get up to $480 of free meat with that subscription. You get to pick top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, bacon. It is all up to you. Plus, if you're looking for gifts to get for the people that are impossible to shop for, goodranchers.com also has gift boxes. You need to act quick. This is part of their overall Black Friday special. 
special. So head on over to GoodRanchers.com, use promo code Nick. And once again, thank you for listening.